episode of Waste Books, a book club podcast brought to you by Waste Division, Art Collective, and Online Magazine. If you like what you hear on this episode, please check out our website, waste-division.org, where you can find lots of similar stuff, uh, fiction, essays, comics, some music, photography, You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram if you want to give us a like or a follow. Um, Or if you're feeling generous, you can donate through Podbean. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com. If you just search Waste Books on there, we should pop up and you can be a patron. Uh, We appreciate if you can toss us a dollar per episode if you like it. Speaking of which, we have our first patron... Brian in Pensacola, Florida, has pledged $6. Thank you very much, Brian. We will be sending you a little bundle of waste stickers. But that's enough plugs. Let's get into the show. We hope you enjoyed this conversation about Dune, which includes just about the first half of the book. We go up to the line that says, At the age of 15, he had already learned silence. That is through page 235 in the 40th anniversary edition. Here it is, our conversation about Frank Herbert's Dune. Waste. 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 Books! (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm pretty ripped. I'm pretty ripped. Damn, you found I some fight. Chong? Yeah, oh. I went to that side trance party uh, on a boat. And, oh, that uh, side trance party. <laughs> well, it was like it was like five houseboats linked together. Like, oh my god, that sounds amazing. <laughs> no, dude, it was. It was awesome. Okay, we need to start uh, recording this. Everybody shut up. It's like push uh, okay. record so we can get some stories and bands. <laughs> <laughs> It was really, really like uh, a side trans party that's five boats linked together. <laughs> yeah, it, it was really low key though. There was like less than two hundred people there, and uh, oh really low key on five houseboats. <laughs> it was. It, it was loud as fuck, but like there weren't a lot of people. And in the middle of a giant lake. What's side trance? <laughs> it's just like type of electronic music that's like really loud and just sounds like drugs, basically. <laughs> is it like side drugs. like S-I-D-E? Like, no, it's side like your psyche. Oh, like your psyche. <laughs> yeah, yeah, P-S-I, trance. Like psychedelic, psychedelic trance. I don't know why I thought it was side trance. Side trance. <laughs> this is a, pay, a paid advertisement for Diplos. <laughs> this whole podcast is just branded content for Skrillex. And oh, cool. it's, it's nothing like that, I promise you that. <laughs> I had a feeling that if I said that, I would insult you in some way. I took the bait. I took the bait. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. Can we get into this? Is everybody comfortable with, like, the screens and stuff? Is it a bit easier for just, like, natural dialogue uh, if we can I see each so. other? I probably won't be looking at it, but it distracts me personally. But I'll, if it helps you guys focus, I'll just keep my face on here. I think it distracts yeah, I don't me mind too, it. But... Cool. Sweet. Um, well, let's... Go ahead and introduce ourselves. This is Phil in Billings, Montana. This is Eric in Eugene, Oregon. Hello, this is Cooper in Billings. Uh, This is Dan in Bangkok, Thailand. This is Jordan in Brooklyn, New York. 
And we're the Waste Boys. <laughs> the, the Waste, waste Boys. Book. Have we? Is that what we decided on? <laughs> no. We're the Waste Book the waste Boys. Boys. And we're here to talk about Dune. 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 By Frank Herbert. The man has two first names. <laughs> One of them guys. Just amazing. One of them. Just amazing. Um, yeah, so who... Was it going to be you, Cooper, or Jordan to do the short summary? I would... I, I have a little something, and I would I would be happy to... Please. If you didn't no. come up with... Please. Yeah. Um, as it says in the cover, this is a science fiction masterpiece, and I tend to agree. It takes place in mankind's distant, distant future. Um... In which the the known universe is being run by a corporation on its chome, uh, several different feudal families, and its main currency is the spice melange, an oracular drug of sorts that not only um, is used in ceremonies to help predict the future, but also runs their hyperspace flight and is a, a currency of sorts with the feudal families uh, vying to control the most amount of of spice and our story takes place um, on the planet Caladan with the Atreides family. Uh, General Padisha has ordered them to move to uh, the planet Arrakis known as Dune in which this is the only known planet where spice is uh, is manufactured and sold and so our intrepid hero Paul, the 15 year old Paul Atreides is, is moved to Arrakis with his family and uh, must uh, learn to survive on this uh, terrible planet with, with uh, f- uh, royal families at each other's throats and uh, the, the future of Arrakis on the line. Nice. Just to keep it vague and exciting Very enough. Very vague. Is that how you pronounce it? Arrakis? Ar- Arrakis? I think so, yeah. Okay. That's the thing. A lot of this, like, there's going to be some pronunciation different, you know, like, like, I, I always said Freeman when I read it, but I think a lot of people yeah. say Fremen. Mm. I thought it was a play on Freeman. I also thought it could yeah. be Ericus with the double R, like a Spanish double R. Mm. Oh, you were rolling your tongue Aracus. with it. Arrakis. <laughs> I like it. Arrakis. Arrakis. No, I always read it Arrakis. We can just refer to it as Dune if it's going to be too big of an issue. No, Cooper, I did online here. Uh, I was watching some talks with the author, and he, he said your pronunciation, so I think that's right. Arrakis. Arrakis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Arrakis. Okay. Um, cool. Now, I... a little, I, little bit of history with Dune. So Frank Herbert was... Frank Herbert was a lot of things. He was... <laughs> A journalist and a photographer and just sort of a general uh, thinker and curious adventure type. He went out to Florence, Oregon, where he was watching the U.S. Agricultural Department try to stop the, the, the dunes, the sand dunes that are near Florence, Oregon with poverty grass. Um, that inspired him. He did a bunch of research. He was going to turn it into an article about their effort. Um, I, I think all that research didn't come to fruition of an article, but it did inspire what would later become Dune. Um, and, and, and that is very much, I mean, the entire novel of, of Dune is pretty much set on the desert planets of Arrakis. Uh, and by desert planets, desert planet, we really mean desert planet. Like, there's absolutely no body of water on this planet, and besides the very few s- scrub trees and whatnot, it is truly just a rolling desert planet. Yeah, when I read that uh, on that doc about Florence, Oregon, I didn't even make the connection before because I've 
that's like an hour away from Eugene. Yeah. And so we've been out there like plenty of times and seen the dunes, and they're just like rolling, like ever changing, you know, shape. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. Hills. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is crazy to get out there, and it's really fun to to. Uh, to and they totally do there. have those big patches of grass out there, but they they survive pretty well. Like these patches of like foliage and around the dunes because it rains so much out there, and so that's the probably the the big difference is they're obviously right by the ocean, so. It doesn't necessarily re- yeah. resemble a desert. Now, Dune is one of, I believe, <laughs> six books, six books. Uh, that Frank Herbert wrote. Though itself, the the beauty of this series is that it sort of st- each book stands alone. Um, we can we can read Dune, and you don't ever have to feel compelled to read any of his other ones. Uh, and that's sort of how each one goes. It's just a further continuation of the different philosophies that he's set up in Dune. Um, but it's it is a seminal piece of soft science fiction. It won the very first ever uh, Nebula Award, um, and I believe was runner up in the or or maybe I believe it was runner up or it tied for first for the the Hugo Award, mm-hmm. both of which are huge monumental science fiction and fantasy um, uh, book awards. So the, when this came out, it a little bit about in the afterward or maybe it was the forward where Frank Herbert talks about. Um, you know, he was denied publication for a long time until eventually a publisher who didn't really even deal in science fiction just liked the story and decided to take a risk on it. Because, I mean, this it's a huge, it's a huge book. I know that we had different copies, so we had, uh, we each had different, different books, but this is like a 600-page book, at least the one that I have. 800 with all, like, the appendixes and glossaries and stuff. The one I so have hard- ends at, like, 794. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a huge book. So publishers didn't want to take a chance on it, and and it was the very first of its kind as far as science fiction is concerned. It was published in what was it? 65? 1965. Um, so he definitely he, it took him a while to publish it, but once he did, it sort of took off immediately, and it's been it's been sold and read continually ever since. Cooper, I have a question for you. Have you read the sequels? Yeah. Or have you? Oh, I've read I've read all all of Frank Herbert's sequels. I've the whole it's, oh wow it's the whole saga. it's incredible. It, and it not, he actually passed away before he could finish it. So the very last one, Chapter House Dune, uh, leaves a lot of things open. So it's it's sort of disappointing in the fact that it doesn't tie itself up. But what he does with the sequels is super phenomenal. It's the only way I could have ever imagined Dune going. And like I said in the text message, it's. The whole entire Dune series stretches over like thousands of years, and it's in across the universe. It is truly like fascinating to think about a cohesive series that takes place over millennia. Mm-hmm. So in in this story, I think we should zoom in a little bit. We gave like a pretty broad. I mean, there's a lot to cover with you know a whole big temporal and spatial change, but. Can we talk about our characters a bit in this and like who's our protagonist and what's going on? Cooper, is that something you want yeah, to Yeah, happily. Cuz I feel, I feel like you're our expert, so we should I would, just yeah. <laughs> So we're we're following the Atreides family um, whose home planet is Caladan, the the beautiful green blue water planet. Um, we have our antagonists are the Harkonnens. The Harkonnens are a brutal and disgusting degenerated family who are on Gatus Prime, I believe. 
and they ha- kind of have an in with the uh, Emperor Padishah, who uh, is is the ruler of of all of the of the the feudal families and whatnot. And um, I I it begs I, I wrote a bunch of stuff down because uh, Frank Herbert, I mean with he he borrowed so much from Greek mythology, especially with creating the Atreides family, because um, there, there there's the ancient Greek like family, the House of Atreyu. And Atreides actually means like being the son of Atreyu. And so a lot of like Paul's based on Agamemnon and, and Menelaus. And if you guys remember your uh, Homer history, like those are those are who started the Trojan War when Menelaus's wife Helen was kidnapped by Paris or left on her own free will, depending on uh, which side of the aisle you want to be on with ancient Greek history. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's I love about this is that the the house of Atreyu um, in Greek mythology is famous because it's a cursed family. So it's it's bloodline was cursed when um, when Tantalus, the son of Zeus, decided to feed the gods his son um, Paplos as a test of their omniscience. And every god saw through that except for uh, Demeter, who was distracted because her daughter Penelope was kidnapped by Hades. Reasonable. That's understandable. And she <laughs> ate a piece of uh, Pelops's shoulder, and because of that, the gods sent Tantalus down into um, the underworld, where he would spend an eternity uh, standing in a pool of water uh, beneath a fruit tree. And every time he'd reach up to eat the fruit, uh, the branches would move up. And every time he bent down to drink from the water, the the pool of water would go away. Hmm. Thus is the origins of the word tantalizing. Fun little fact there. Anyways, that that, for, <laughs> that forever cursed the Atreyu family, and I think you can you can definitely Atreus. see that. Yeah, Atreus family. The Atreyu family. Yeah, Atreus. That's what he said. <laughs> you said Atreyu like the House band. of Atreus. Yeah, it's fucking it's, sick. That metal band, <laughs> band Atreyu. <laughs> well, I think they probably took their name from <laughs> from, from the this band. ancient so Greek. The, the ancient Greeks family. Took their name from the band. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were just a, time, they were man. just a group uh, a special class of people with the foresight of uh, yeah. <laughs> where they were they were indulging in some spice melange. Yeah, so that's probably it. Anyways, the whole inspiration, you know, it it with that in mind, it makes sense why uh, all of the all of the Atreides uh, ended up in in some bad shape or another until it took Paul who who broke the the curse of the family. Um, so that's, and I, I didn't see really anything, I mean, there's a lot of, like, his, like, real-life historical royal families that the Harkonnens could easily be based off of. I didn't find anything specific. Um, and those are, those are kind of the two big families that we're dealing with. And then, of course, we have uh, the Freeman, the Fremen on Arrakis. And if my understanding is the Fremen were, like, the first uh, human colonizers on the desert planets of, of Arrakis, and then over generations just slowly became what they are in our story because i i for myself at first when i started reading this the fremen almost read like an alien species Mm -hmm. i'm not sure if that uh, um, was anybody else's original thought that was Mm -hmm. a a sort of a confusing point for me until i had to realize no there's no aliens we're not dealing with any aliens in the universe of doom right the fremen were the first human colonizers who who um just sort of went native but they've adapted to where they look so different and like yeah yeah i don't know if we want to talk about it's kind of interesting with their eyes and stuff Mm -hmm. 
Right, which is a side effect of being addicted to spice melange. Now, like, that part gets confusing, too, because I think spice is just a general term, and then the name of that spice is melange. Mm. Mm. But it's it's usually referred to as spice. But they say, and they usually refer to it as tasting like cinnamon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, Mm. most of the time. So can we talk about spice real quick? Because that's the real driver here. And and maybe we could talk a little bit about, like, uh, sort of myths. One of the myths that this takes... Uh, which is kind of like what you see on Avatar the movie or like Dances with Wolves or whatever kind of or it's in the song that Gorilla's song about the mountain mm, yeah. <laughs> but it's just about outsiders coming to harvest this really valuable thing and not having any regard for pretty much anything else totally. other than themselves and their object of desire um, and so in this we have the Basically, the empire that's interested in spice. I'm kind of confused about how the empire has different branches through different houses and like. Yeah, we should definitely talk about side that. everybody's on. We we should need we need to talk about that kind well, of that, thing. But, so I was um, mentioning earlier, like that reminds me totally of like kind of medieval fantasy style. Ooh. Yes. Yeah, it's feudal. Where like uh, I've been recently. watching Game of Thrones recently, and it's all about like houses and and like bloodlines and like you know the importance of like the symbolism and strength of your house and like and that's totally right. all throughout this as well like with well what's well, it, like what's we it? uh frank herbert didn't necessarily necessarily see this in his time frame but we certainly live in a very dune style society in which we have very wealthy aristocratic families around the world who then help run or are a part of these corporations that also run the world the dune universe is a a i mean just think of these families just being very wealthy totally. families and then there's Chome, which is the Combine Honit Ober Advancer Mercantiles, which is the giant universal developmental corporation. So all these families are just working apart with Chome. Chome is this giant bureaucracy. Um, but the, the feudal families are also uh, run by an emperor who would just the emperor of the universe. Right. So that's, that's the connection here. We very much live in that, that sort of time frame. Uh, but it is sort of initially confusing. We're like, who is really, like, what's really in charge or what's really mm-hmm. happening here? But essentially, it's just an emperor who runs all these wealthy families and in part uh, working with this giant corporation that is Chome. And what right. there's uh, the, so they deb- the Space Guild, too. Right. The Space Guild is who drives the, uh, they're the only ones allowed to drive the spaceships that go through hyperspace. Right, and I remember they were, like, really hmm. mysterious. Right, like no one interacts yes, with them yes, when you, they like travel. Like it's really strange. Yes, it it it's a it's it's never discussed fully in this book, but later on you get to find out more about like the an anatomical changes that the space drivers have gone through, which is super mm. fascinating. But they are like very much a secretive group, and they're the ones who, I mean, it's we li- it's we Dune is definitely a world of like monopoly. So the space skills a monopoly on travel. They, they own what would essentially be like the locomotives. Mm. They just own everything that deals totally. with travel. But they also uh, put a Chum, lot of importance in their names, like the, the names of their houses and like what that means. Because they, they uh, mentioned this like civil war, beto- or not civil war, this war between the houses of Harkonnen and, well, how do you? Oh yeah, the, the family yeah, the, or whatever the, the family is. Canley. Canley. And what's, how do you pronounce uh, the, Paul's house name? Atreides. Atreides. Yeah. So they, it's like they mentioned, like they've had this, like you know, centuries-long house battle, and it's like, right? Uh, they they really put a lot of 
weight on like their like bloodline and like making sure mm-hmm. to keep certain things in certain bloodlines. Which, and we we see that now too. We, we there's there's the Kennedys and the Bushes and the Clintons and the the Duponts. Like we have very wealthy families in America who have generational linkage that are, are pretty similar in, in what they'll do to keep totally. their name well and uh pure well, and Paul's stuff. dad actually remember that was kind of a point of contention was that he wouldn't marry Paul's mother because he could easily like use a marriage to another house to curry favor with them yeah. Right, right. He, she, just uh, Lady Jessica always remained his concubine as opposed to his wife, even though she was the only woman he ever loved. Right, R.I.P. Right. And then, the, and then the whole like, um, uh, along with the name thing, like the drawing back to the importance of uh, their home planets, or like you know, uh, especially Caladan is where they're from, or Caladon. Um, here, I have a passage here on. It's like one of those little blurbs at the beginning, right before the beginning of the chapters. Like text from another book that he's referencing. Um, oh, right. At the top of each chapter. But uh, it says, there's a legend that the instant that Duke Leto Atreides died, a meteor streaked across the skies above his ancestral palace on Caladan. So the idea that he is somehow, you know, like linked to his geographical homeworld too in a way that even when he dies, like you know, the cosmos recognize it. Right. And I, I wanted to go back to what Phil is talking about with other references to, to like, what Spice is. What I think is really interesting in Dune is that Spice could be... You could make an analogy between Spice and Oil, but which is super interesting is that whereas the... Whereas Oil and or, or, or all these stories of natural resources being being taken and pillaged, the, the world is itself ruined because of it. Mountaintop being cut down, you know, fracking with the leakage in the water, uh, destroying the natural resources. What's great about Dune is that more often than not, the, the colonizers, whether it's the Harkonnens or Atreides who are taking the spice, are losing lives. Like, it is, a, it is a very hostile planet in which they are not stripping it or otherwise um, harming it. They're actually, like, having to contest with it constantly with the giant spice excavators having to watch out for the sandworms that come. It's very much like a battle of, of these people. It's not necessarily like an easy pillage where they can just come in, cut all the trees down, shave the mountaintops, ruin the water. It is, it, I, he did that, I think, intentionally to show just how important Dune is. It's not just yeah. a docile planet that's being raped and pillaged. It, is, it lends itself to being at odds with, with the, the people trying to take the spice because it is at odds with everything that is not on Arrakis. Mm-hmm. Which is what the Fremen had to learn. So, in my mind, I was, like, thinking about it. Again, like, when you think of those people that come to take the resource, like, with their... I'm thinking of them with, like, glasses on and, like, fancy guns and suits and stuff. Like, usually that, like, involves some kind of intensive process for getting a hold of it. So, in this case, it's both, like, the Fremen... Or the Fremen, but... More, it is just the planet. Like, they have to deal with just how harsh it is. Um, I don't know, that just... It's so... I mean, there's, it's so harsh, like, there's no water. Oh, there's no water on it. Right. There's no natural... There's, like, sandstorms that blow so fast they'll tear the flesh off of people. Mm-hmm. So it reminds me of kind of the intensive processes we see today in, like, extractive industries, like the fossil fuel industry. Like, as you start to tap into, like, the easiest 
like the lowest hanging fruit in terms of resources. You have to like start doing weird stuff like the fracking like we're doing now where it's very brutal. Like you go to these places and you have to go deep and it ends up just tearing up the place. And I don't know, I just ended up thinking about a lot of that kind of thing with this where it's like a lot is at stake for this thing that's really valuable. Yeah. And people want it. Like what do what do we think Spice does? Because at, at the point in the book, I mean, like, do we have we really seen, like, the extent of what spice is, or like, what do you guys think well, like, spice mm. is? Well, I mean, it's obviously like some kind of drug, like, right? Well, like, take it in moderation. It's fine, right? Like, the fremen are fine. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they can live like normal lives and shit. But like, like, they, I remember him talking a little bit about how, like, to, like if you abuse it, like, it, you could go down south pretty quick. Right, and if you remember, like, they refer to it as, like, a geriatric drug, because apparently it has, like, some life-extending properties, where mm-hmm. if you take it in, like, your morning coffee, you become a, sl- a slight addict to it, but apparently it has some um, life, um, yeah, some geriatric, they just refer to it as a geriatric property, where people who take it uh, live longer. So that's one thing we've seen Spice uh, do. Also, it can, like, grant precognition. Right, like a, a mm-hmm. it, they can sort of see into the future, supposedly. Right, I remember, yeah, yeah, Paul does that toward the end, first part. Is that true for everybody, or is that true of just Paul because of Paul's status as this messiah figure? Wikipedia told me in general that, uh, that that's an effect of it. Although I think we've only really seen it with Paul mm-hmm. uh, so far in our reading, but Wik- Wikipedia had other things to say. Got it. So we need, I think we should talk about Paul. He seems to make sense as like a vehicle to talk about what happens. The man of many names. Yeah. I guess the child of many names. So like maybe one way I would start into that is talking about like how every chapter has, um, as an epigraph, is that an epigraph? I believe so, by by the princess or ruling. Epigraph. So there, well, it's like different little excerpts from these like historical or religious texts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or like books of sayings. Um, so you kind of like I think we were talking about this before we started recording, but you get a sense of even though this is in the future, there's also a sense of this already being history because of these documents, like right? Because it'll say like I remember in the chapter. Uh, like where we see the treacherous traitor Doctor Hewitt, um, like it said, it has a quote from the the religious book where it's like, "Damn that Doctor Hewitt" or so, something right. similar. So we like you get a little foreshadowing through this historical text of what about what's about to happen and kind of who this doctor is in this. Like this struck me as a really Shakespearean uh, arrangement, just yeah. like in that you have these high power people competing over like large swaths of land and resources um so you get some of that uh and also like right off the bat like the 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 mystery is removed i mean i you get a sense early on that paul is maudib yes it doesn't hide that but so what's exciting then is you have this giant tome in your hands you're like well what happens to lead him to be this maudib um, um, and you get other hints, like remember when he first gets onto Arrakis, they're they're shouting the pe- mm-hmm. the Fremen are shouting Maudi at him, mm-hmm. which Maudi is the Freeman term for it. Here I had it, right here, because he has many names, but he he will eventually be, uh, you know, Maudi is the um, 
He's the uh, Messianic legend, the one who will lead us to paradise. They also refer to him as the Lisan al Gaib. <laughs> He's the voice from the outer world. In Freeman Messianic Legends, an off world prophet, sometimes translated as giver of water. So, right off the bat, people are, are, are seeming to place a lot in Nepal. And even like the very beginning of the book, when, when the uh, Honorable Mother, or whatever she's called, the, uh, the, the woman from the Bene Gesserit comes, she does the Quizak Hadarak test on Paul to find out if he's human or not. That's how we begin the book. is already knowing that he is something special and he's passed the test and proven that there's a possibility that he could be the one they were looking for i think that's uh, something important to bring up is uh, his mother's race well not a race it's a religion i mean but is it is it a religion well it's, it's like what or, it, what did it like in in the glossary it says like it's a school of like mental and physical discipline or something like that but yeah it's just some kind of just like organ like spiritual organization I, I'm of women right. only, but of mostly yeah, only women except for Paul. Well, that's like because it it touches lightly on it, but if you read the appendix in Dune, the Bene Gesserit are a group of women who, over the millennium, have developed a genetic. They're genetically trying to create their Messiah, which is the Quizak Hatterak, and so it touches on this in the book where like they plan who marries who, when women, or when the Bene Gesserit are allowed to have children, like throughout the book women are frequently like collecting semen from the men because they've been like it, it like right. been programmed like all right that's the time you should grab it because they're, so gen- they're genetics geneticists well there i think it's just it's sort of like it's what his idea of what nuns of today would evolve into because they are like the christian right. catholic people and i don't it's not a race they're just they're just but religion if you're, fucking, if you're fucking with genetics and shit i mean what at what point, when you're creating the perfect type of person you're looking for, does that become, like, a race of its own? That's an interesting question. When they've perfected Well, that. and I think it's probably what they're getting at when Paul is something different. For sure. Right, is Paul, is, the well, Paul is their messiah. So, that it's their second coming. I don't know if that makes right. it a race or not, but... Because the Bene Gesserit are able to use spice to look into the future a bit... They have like, uh, or and more importantly for the Bene Gesserit, they're able to look into the past. Mm. They're able to touch right. a, into a bunch of like the centuries of other honorable mothers and learn from the past through like the physical. It, it describes it in very beautiful ways, but essentially it's just like you, you are Joan of Arc. Like you remember every moment in Joan of Arc's life, and then, so the Quizak Hatteract is the male version of that who's able to tap into this mysterious place that the women can't go into and they believe that a, a male would be able to come who can go into the female past and also the male future and past mm. now i never so, i never read it as a race that's interesting i always just assumed it was a religious yeah. organization like the, who are tired of waiting for their messiah and they decided to like produce it instead I'm just wondering with what you were saying there with how they're trying to, yeah, like, perfect, you know, the reproduction process. Does that line become blurred then? It's a good question. But it, yeah. Um, so let's talk about, like, well, how, how meta was that fucking test that Paul had to do? Oh, yeah. What was it? What was it called? Was it just called, like, the Quizak Hatterak test? 
I don't know. Does anybody have any idea? Why? I was yeah, just yeah, so yeah, yeah, lost yeah, yeah. during that first part. Yeah. I think. Right. That isn't. That is important to mention. Uh, Frank Herbert intentionally wrote the beginning of the book to be very confusing because he didn't want it to be a slow, natural build, which you'll find in a lot of novels. He instead wanted to throw you into the world, so it felt more natural. It felt like a more natural story in which you are just being taught the history and assume that you already know everything, which is why he put the glossary in the back of all the words. Right. So maybe we could talk about like some of those opening, like that test. Is it? Does it open yes. with that test? It's pretty soon. Um, I believe it opens with the. Uh, they're they're finding out that they have they're being forced to move to Arrakis. Not forced, but it's that you know politicking stuff where the emperors recommended that they go to Arrakis and they have to go. Um, and then, yeah, uh, Reverend Mother, so they're all, all these women in, in the Bene Gesserits are referred to re- as Reverend Mothers. Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohim, she comes to the Atreides' house to use the test. And um, I'm trying... That's where they're seeing if, like, he's showing signs of being this, like, prophet. Well, it's, it's supposed to be, they test whether or not he's human. Is how they refer to it. If he's human or not, because a human will be able to understand that what's happening to their hand in the box isn't real, despite the agonizing pain, and they fear death more than anything. Cause remember, she also holds that needle that has poison at the end of it next to his neck, and if you were to twitch in any way, she would kill him. So it's a test, according to the Bene Gesserit, to find out whether or not he's human. Because if he was an animal, he would forget the fear of death in order to escape the pain. He would like not be able to logically rationalize what's happening. Okay. But in a way, they've already assumed that he might be the Bene Gesserit, and I think because of his ability to endure more pain than is normal, and also remember they talk about the voice a lot. The voice is a big part of Bene Gesserits. They've and this is really interesting. It doesn't have to do with the spice. It's that these this group of women have over the millennia been able to train the human vocal cords and mind to be able to find frequencies that are suggestive to other humans. Right. So when they use the voice, they speak in this strange frequency that if you were to hear it, you can't help but follow okay. what they say. Yeah. And even Paul, near the end of the first half of the book, was like able to use it to some extent. In the, yeah. in the, the thopter. The th- even even yeah. in the beginning of the book, his mom is talking to, to Reverend Mother uh, Helen Mohim, and she kind of says, like, I've, I've, I've heard him use a like a very infantile version of the voice on people in the house so he's certainly something special uh-huh something special he's something special <laughs> and i i can't find where what this test oh. is called where are you looking for just the name of this test oh gom jabbar or that's just the needle she holds to his neck it is the needle with a drop of poison on its tip don't pull away or you'll feel that poison. <laughs> At this point, Paul is 15, I believe. Yeah, a young fella. Mm-hmm. Or 14, maybe. He's a, he's a youngin. He lives a very blessed life. His, his home life on Kaladin with, with Gurney Halleck and Thufar Hawit is just full of fun and adventure. This is like one of those classic stories where our main character, Paul, like right off the bat, is like already... His 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 journey, his hero's journey, is that he's a very charismatic, young, likable fellow who's already very talented at his studies, at fighting, at dueling, um, at this mental capacity. He's very smart. Right. Isn't that brings me to another question? So mentat. Mm, that's yeah. another type of. Yeah, we should talk about well, that. Mentat's the human being... computer. No, not a, no. It's again like 
it's not a different race. It's just that right. humans through evolution, just like Benny Gesserit with the voice, have been able to find a way of training the human mind to work like a logical operating machine, gotcha. according those, to Frank Herbert's Dune. And why and Mentats? Hold on, Trick. Why did they do that? Because a long, long time ago, and I believe in like the year 102 BC in this Earth time, they've created artificial intelligence. Uh, they had thinking computers, and there was a very famous war called the Butlerian Jihad, in which mankind fought against these AI. They won, and they've outlawed uh, any computers of any kind. Which was a very cool uh, invention on his part, like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I remember him talking, like, the, the stuff I read online was basically, like, he wanted to avoid, like, just, like, getting into, like, hard science fiction, like, just talking about how, like, in, like, terms of natural science, how this technology worked. And so, like, just... Right. Yeah, it's supposed to be imaginative. You're just supposed and, to... And drop the stuff, it. I, yeah, right. And the stuff I, like, was reading said, like, he wanted to focus more on, like, the political, feudal structure of human relations. And so to, like, put the focus more on that, he kind of, like... In a weird way, he turned a constraint into something, like not talking about technology. He turned it into like making the story that much more rich. I mean, it was pretty yeah. cool. Right. With like with a fascinating imagination like that, the mentat to me like makes sense in terms of if you if the human if mankind if humankind rid itself of thinking computers, and and they outlawed them, the next solution would then to try and make the human mind more of like a logical thinking machine. Um, it's it was uh, that was the most fascinating thing to me the idea that over like human evolution evolved to a point where yeah and like the 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 doctors remember the doctors also went to a school Doctor Yuck who's the traitor of this of this story he went to a school in which the doctors are trained to such a degree that they are incapable of harming any human being, um, which is an interesting way of like ridding you know you, you can get into questions like physically of like, harming yeah or whatever the whatever that uh, promise is that he made that yeah, makes him he, capable he's got like a is, mark on his forehead right right the the diamond on his forehead that makes oh, okay. it people know that he's a doctor that went to this school and I can't remember exactly because that was a big thing that the traitor was this doctor conspiracy because he was incapable of hurting right there was a conditioning yeah exactly that's exactly what it was a conditioning yeah. He was incapable of hurting the Atreides family, which is, ha- and then Harkonnen found a way of being able to break that conditioning. Mm. Yuck did. No, Yuck was. Remember, Harkonnen like kidnapped his wife. Okay. No okay. one ever suspected yeah. him. And, like tortured her. Like he was the only one that no one ever suspected. Right, right, and he still had a <laughs> conscious enough to help like save the mom and. Son. It's just an interesting. It's just an interesting idea of like, what does that mean for like free will as far as this universe is concerned if we're dealing with like there's such heavy conditioning in terms of like being a mentat and being a Mm. uh uh what is this is it a sook doctor or is his name sook or there's i think that was the name yeah like sook doctor or the the mentat is the term for the human computer the sook school yeah and and uh it sounds like each like each house has a mentat and each house has like a a sook doctor Mm mm-hmm so these are very specialized individuals based on a long history of <laughs> development in their respective fields. Dr. Yu, that's what his name, Dr. Yu. He was the he was the traitor. He's who he mm-hmm. killed uh, Leto, the father of Paul and and um, 
just like a little snitch bitch, he he freed Paul and Jessica. I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he's like, Leto, here's a little poison tooth. I know I fucking betrayed you, and I already know my wife's dead, but here's a poison tooth because sorry I fucked you over. Just remember Whoa, that tooth. Right to the end of our fucking chapter, or our reading today. Wait, really? That's the middle? That oh, was... right, right. When he's, but that's, we've already, that's right. yeah, we've already got to that. Yeah. Spoiler um, alert, the dad dies. Hmm. The, the Duke <laughs> dies. The Duke dies. Um, so what happens to Paul from that beginning? I think we should maybe stay on that train. Yeah, yeah, good idea. From the very beginning, well, he, he passes the test. Yep. The test that I, I can't seem to find and nobody else seems to know what it's called. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking um, through the glossary. I can't find a damn thing. Don't worry about it. Because <laughs> the very beginning of the book, we it's a very slow build. We find out that the family's being moved to Arrakis to be the, the lords of Arrakis. So they're making that slow move. We meet Gurney Halleck, which is the the commander of arms of the Atreides. Or he's he's essentially like their their army officer. He's who leads their soldiers. He's head of security. He's who trains Paul in how to duel. Um, he's a very large, ugly man with a, a, an ink vine stain on his face. When he was, as a child, he was a slave in Gades Prime, which is the, the slave planet that Harkonnen owns. Um, he's also very talented at the loot. You know, this is a very, like, uh, Tolkien-style uh, story in which there's a lot of songs in this. A lot of them are really funny songs from Gurney Halleck when he plays his lute. He's just, I don't, I don't know what type of character he would be, but he's very common in a lot of literature. He's the, the very stoic, not stoic, but he's the Epicurean character where he's uh, very funny, but also very, very talented at what he does. Um, oh, we have Duncan Idaho, where Duncan Idaho, Duncan Idaho might be, Gurney Halleck might be in charge of the, uh, the security and Duncan Idaho might be in charge of the army. Does anybody remember Duncan Idaho with like the curly black hair, the super handsome yeah. guy? Yeah, I'm oh, pretty yeah. sure he's like one of their main lieutenants or whatever. They're they're both training. They're both very close with with the young Paul, and they're both training him to fight. Because in this world, there's a lot of duels. Um, there's like the Guild of Assassins or whatever, a War of Assassins, in which there doesn't seem to be very much laser battles. So it's all hand to hand, if you remember. There's a very strange thing. It's kind of a funny idea of technology advancing, where they they invented shields. And so that they had to train themselves then to use swords that were so slow that you could pierce the shields. Remember that was a big thing. Mm, they had like these. That's why it reminds me so much of medieval. Like, yeah. Just because it's so like, it's like the technology's gone so far that they're actually back to more primitive ways of fighting. Right. It's an interesting mm-hmm. idea of like the war of attrition too, because remember they do have like laser guns and nuclear weapons, but they can't use them because the whole everything's covered by these shields. And as they found out, if you were to shoot this shield with a laser gun or nuclear weapon, it creates, like, a fucking mega nuclear weapon that just blows everything up. So these houses can't use these weapons. All they can do is just try to stab each other, or they have those little darts that fly around and try to fucking stab people. Mm -hmm. Which is really good plot-wise, because otherwise you can just shoot... Like, oh, why did they just shoot them? Like, oh, because they could have risked blowing everything up. So everything is sort of forced to be hand-to-hand combat, and you you can't just conclude these plots or like subplots with just shoot them from afar yeah (laughs) dune dune is magic in the sense where like you 
as you explain it out loud, it kind of sounds ridiculous, but then you can, he, he's explained everything, so you can, like, give examples of, like, oh, one time in the war, a long time ago, apparently this family found out you can't blow up a shield with a gun. Like, it's, it, everything is, is sort of logically explained in this very soft science fiction universe to the point where it is believable, you can follow the train of thinking of all these people, and you are right there involved in the story, and you don't feel lost, you don't feel like, well, why don't they just fucking blow them up, or why don't they just do this? Mm -hmm. he, he's really written yourself, he, you're in a corner with Dune reading it, and it's a very comfortable corner, because you're like, what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. How are they going to get themselves out of this pickle right here? <laughs> and then, not to mention that the shields also attract the the big ecological terror on Dune, which is the the worms. The big fucking sandworms. And the the freemen always laugh at him like, oh, shields? Like, the worms are going to come, like, murder you. And there's also, oh, well, I didn't know if we talked about the fact that there is a possible link between the, the, the spice and the sandworms, and about that sort of causality that's going yes. on there. Um, if it's a link to some sort of naturalism or some sort of violence in naturalism. I'm not sure if we've discussed that, or even if that's been verified at the point that we're at in the story. I think, I, I think there's a lot, a lot of like the spice production stuff explained in the second part of the book. At least I think, because like, like, I think like the first, like, like, like you guys talked about, like it's a disorienting beginning, like when you read mm -hmm. through it, like all these terms. So like you end up spending a lot of time in the glossary, like yeah. just like fishing around, and like I've come across like random. You know, just, like, letting my eyes glance over, just, like, random stuff related to, like, how Spice is made in Arrakis. Like, you know, he's very mm -hmm. technical with, like, I mean, like, maybe he wanted to shy away from describing the natural science of, like, space travel or, like, or like spots where you could use computers. But, uh, well, other stuff he describes a lot. Well, no, just, like, with other stuff, like, with the Spice, how the Spice is made on the planet or, like, weather conditions on the planet. He's very, very, like, technical. Right, and as of right now in the book, I believe it's just the characters as well as us, the readers, are, we have some sort of vague notion that possibly the worms are responsible for spice, or maybe they like the spice and they go towards it. We're not sure, but there's worms on the planet and there's spice sure on the planet. The e ecologist mentioned something about how there was a... Canes? Or... Yeah. He's a huge He's a huge part of this story. He's, he's why we have the mes uh, messianic legend for or his father is for the Fremen mm. I'm pretty sure there's a section somewhere that says that something like the spice isn't manufactured it's 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 just mined on Arrakis yeah. Arrakis yeah it's it's a right. natural product of something on Arrakis right Arrakis they don't the actually only... they don't even manufacture it after they mine it that it's like it just comes up clean as a whistle. It's ready to it's, go. It's right, ready gold. to go. Ready to be sold. And just like, clean it off. Just dust her off and, <laughs> and put her in your coffee. Right. Canes is great. They just gotta Canes filter is, it for worm poop. Canes is one of my favorite characters because we meet him when he comes on. He's the he's the uh, empire's um, environmentalist or naturalist on the planet. Right. But he's gone. He's gone full Captain Kurtz. He's fucking heart of darkness in there. Mm -hmm. He's Freeman now for life. Yeah, so, I. Yeah, he yeah he was cool because he like he kind of walked that line right where he was like technically like the emperor's page but like he was definitely fremen like he had yes. the blue eyes and like he walked the walk he's and talked married the talk and like that's what, like everyone everyone else talks about him they're like well, the fremen guy which shows how accepting the yeah. fremen are as a culture that they let them in mm -hmm. and like if they respect their rules and their society then they're allowed in mm -hmm. and they sort of represent 
just as this, I don't know, I don't know if it's like fetishizing in like an Orientalist way, but these people who are of the natural are because they're, they've not been corrupted through these uh, systems of power. They're willing to accept people into their culture and they have this sort of uh, respect. Like if you give me respect, I'll give you respect in like a Native American way. What was the point of this? Uh, the sort of people they are? Just the sort of people that they are. Yeah, how accepting. Well, and they, they put a lot of stock in, like, water when they, with their verbiage. Like, when they're talking to people, they talk about not as, like, people, but as their water content. Because so it's so precious on the water. planet. Yeah. Right. And when people die, they, they harvest what moisture they have in yeah. their human right. bodies. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they've devised a whole suit just yeah, to let's capture about the yeah. water. It's, fu- it's fucking phenomenal, like... When they make a bond with each other, they say, like, my water is pledged to your water. Yeah, yeah, their, yeah, their religion is very much uh, to to do with water. They have water rings and everything. There's a funny moment when uh, one of the I forget when it was, but one of the fremen was came into the court and like spat on the table. Yes, yeah, and like everybody in the court was like, "What the fuck?" But then in on Arrakis, that's a sign of respect because you're giving up right. a little bit of moisture, which is very very precious. It's so, so precious like they devised a drop. suit that collects every available moisture from the human body and recycles it so you can drink it. The still suit. The still yeah. suit, yeah. It's, it, it captures all the sweat. It captures urine. In my belief, it captures the feces and yeah. takes the moisture from feces. It takes your perspiration from your breath. Um, you would sweat. And it, it, it's interesting, too, because there's, there's a couple mentions of the evolution of these humans with their still suits. You know, like uh, Stilgar... I'm not sure if we've met him yet, or other Freeman, like even Hayes himself, has some noticeable like marks on his mustache from where the hair doesn't grow because he has the mm. the tubes in his nose mm. so often. Like this is very much a part of Fremen life is the still suits, and they they make the best. You know, I think mm-hmm. uh, it's it mentions like Harkonnens and in, in Atreides can make their own still suits, but the Fremen will obviously make the best still suits. Well, they say you wouldn't be caught dead in some of the suits that right. Fremen yeah. suits. Yeah. And uh, of course, then we get some more messianic stuff when when uh, when Leto and, and Paul go out the first time with Hayes to look at look at Dune for the first time. Uh, remember, Paul puts on the suit as if he's done it a thousand times, and then of course Hayes, like in his mind, like reads some scripture. Where he's like, "The Maldi will put on the suit as if he's done it a thousand times." <laughs> and then he's like, "Paul, how did you know to put your shoes on like that?" And Paul's like, "I don't know. I just thought I. This is how you do it." <laughs> it just seemed right. The Masonic stuff, when taken out of content, is pretty funny. But when you're in the middle of it, you're like, "Oh shit, dude, Paul's Maldi!" Yeah, like, oh motherfucker! <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Uh, okay, okay, okay. So that's kind of nice. So they get to Iraqis and check it out, right? Like, go to see, they do a flyover of some of the mining. Mm -hmm. Um, The Duke, Paul's father, ends up saving a bunch of men because they have a... At the expense. At the expense of a factory, right? They have these, like, mobile factories that they drop down to process the spice. That is... There's a lift that's supposed to take that, and that goes missing. So there's all the men on the factory, and the Duke, apparently... These aristocrats are like highly skilled in lots of areas because he's like an expert pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, so he like 
gets a couple of their auxiliary ships, or like thopters. Thopters, yeah. Thopters. Because they see worm sign. Because right? they see yeah. worm sign, they have to get out of there. So he grabs them and rescues them and gets good favor by distributing his worm r- reward. Or... Thopters are really interesting too. If you remember, they're they're flying machines that have wings that beat like a bird. Mm. So it's it's really interesting. If you guys get a chance to watch uh, David Lynch's Dune, they do a pretty funny job of that. But it's they all of their flying machines uh, mimic the flight of birds, mm. which I which I think is interesting. And this this part is important. I to remember. Um, I, I honestly think that you can look at Leto as a very honorable character. He has not shown to be anything despicable. You know, we have a lot of thoughts about him as an aristocrat, but in this book he is sort of the... Um, he's like Simba's dad. Yeah, he's a very thoughtful, caring patriarch of the family. Simba's dad. And this part's important because he he doesn't do it for good favor. He that's That's his... According to the book, how it presents itself, that's how he thinks. He's like, I will never sacrifice men's lives at the expense of machinery or, or some sort of goal. Like you, Super. you should always think of of <laughs> the your your people first, and that's going to be important because Paul's going to be challenged with that later on. Okay. And so, have I, we talked about the transition of the Harkonnens to the Atreides? Sorry if I pronounced this correctly. Have we talked about that transition? No, because it's hugely important. Yeah. On so, the planet. Uh, well, when the Harkonnens are the ones in command of this planet, and somewhat arbitrarily, I don't know, maybe it'll make more sense in the future, as to why they did this, they transitioned so that the Atreides family would be in control of the planet, and the Harkonnens. I, I don't know. I read this right. in a, like a colonialist, well, uh, colonialist theoretical way of having the Harkonnen, um, Harkonnens colonizing this planet, not seeing the Fremen as something to be regarded at all. They're just sort of like these um, barbaric uh, tribal people. Scum. And they don't realize that they have, they're probably mm-hmm. the greatest fighting force in the entire universe. Um, possibly. Uh, I know that they are descri- they're described as killing the uh, Sar- how do you say it? The Sardikans? Sardikers? Oh, the Sardikers, uh, Emperor Padishah's yeah, are, elite royal yeah, and they're army seen as like the can, greatest fighting force. They used to be the greatest fighting force. They might still be. I know in the in, in the appendix it talks about how the Ben Gesserit are let's see, their swordsmanship. The Sardikur was said to match that of the Ginnet's tenth level and their cunning abilities at infighting were reputed to approach those of a Ben Gesserit adept, insinuating that the Ben Gesserit are the most Adept yeah. fight it, fighters, um, and these uh, Sardikers are yeah. the second best. And I know that the Fremen just annihilate the Sardikers most of the time, insinuating that they're probably they. No one ever knew mm-hmm. that they were so good at fighting. And the point of me saying this is that when the Atreides right. come, they instead of <laughs> mistreating or disregarding the Fremen, they want to work with them, not even knowing how strong they are, and use them in an alliance to control the planet and make this transition uh, more seamless for them. And I think it's like, it's like, it's, it's like the, they're like the good colonialists, like coming into this area and treating them mm-hmm. well. I mean, it's also justifying it in a, maybe in a certain right. respect. <laughs> What's funny too about this is that Fremen mm. themselves were also colonialists. 
Mm-hmm. It is a, it is just a succession of colonialists. Yeah. I mean, the, the Fremen aren't native to Arrakis. They're native to Earth. And then have colonized Arrakis, learned to live with yeah. it, and now they're having to deal with other colonizers in the line of colonizers. I, I wonder if there's enough of an interim that it's something like Native Americans coming across the Bering Strait right. to North America, and they make it their own culture, and there's no one there for God knows how long. Right. And then when they realize how valuable this place is for its resources, that's when, oh, this is the new... Now we want this. Yeah, yeah. The Sardauk are interesting, too. Just They're the most powerful because they live on, like, a fucking slave planet in which they just, like, take boys, and it's just, like, it's, like, hell on Earth. And they're powerful because they've survived, like, the most brutal conditions in pain to become soldiers, which is just, like, such a depressing thought that there are places on the earth in which that is also true for a lot of mm-hmm. uh, a lot of soldiers in which they're the best because they came from the most brutal conditioning. Mm-hmm. They're like the Sith. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like yeah. the Sith Lords. <laughs> but they, I think they said that 6 out of 13 survive or die. About half yeah. of their uh, adepts die in training and that they're super reckless and nihilistic and cynical and just will go into battle without any regard for themselves or anyone else they're just like they're so terrifying right they're just like the emperor's uh, berserkers Mm -hmm. they just are bloodthirsty monsters so like that's that's sort of like the looming force and you get every every once in a while why these these uh houses are kept in check uh by the emperors because he does have these sardikers and then so whenever talk of rebellion comes up, that's always the boogeyman. It's like, well, how can we even think of rebellion when we have the Sardaukor force uh, looming above us? Yeah. And then, of course, we have, like, the secret Fremen who just have these sick Kriz knives that come from the crystal teeth of sandworms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. Let's go back Going to back. Paul. Yeah. So Paul has this suit. They tour it. The Duke rescues the men, and they go back. And because uh, the ecologist, or the planetologist, as mm-hmm. he prefers, is the one taking them on this tour of the planet, right? Yep. Showing them how stuff works, talking about the systems. And I think something that was really interesting to me throughout this is that in all of their culture, there's a lot more regard for like biology and the value of it. And I think that's even reflected, like Cooper mentioned, in the ships that like fly more like birds. Um, and that's kind of like a hip thing now. They call it biomimicry, if you've heard of it, in different design schools. Mm-hmm. Um, where they just take designs of nature, thinking that like, wow, these are the product of millions of years of evolution. Maybe we should try to learn something from it. And they use that. So in this same way, presumably after seeing like the consequences of a highly technolo- technologized technology, yeah. highly technological and industrial culture that it ends in a machine war, peop- or etc. These people are a lot more sensitive to the powers of life and like the mind, which is kind of related. But in that way, like this ecologist who doesn't like in our culture like get much respect at all is usually considered like a pain in the ass. In this culture is like somebody who's very like maybe the most powerful person and you see that even in these like the banker at the party later on or um who are the other the the water baron right um these people like kind of know that this guy like has this power and it almost is like a mystical power Mm -hmm. and he keeps certain things secret because of these 
this idea that someday there might be a Messiah that comes um, and brings water to Dune, brings water to Dune and life. Um, so where else do we want to go? Like, so there's a tour, doctor, then what? Well, let's see. We there is that dinner, and the the dinner is interesting. It's it's fun. It's got you know it's that funny dynamics between people and Jessica using her Benny Jesuit ability is able to read each people and um, and Paul is able to feel out each person. I don't know if that nest the dinner necessarily has too much consequence. It's just an interesting look into who has the power there. And like you pointed out, it is the planetologist who sort of. Because there's, there's always this talk of, uh, apparently in this universe we have these climate machines which we're capable of bringing to planets that don't have weather suitable for humans. And we can, it just sounds like they have like these giant satellites that can sit over a world and, and guide and change how a planet's weather is formed. And it seems like Hayes, am I saying that right? Is it Hayes or is it Keynes? Keynes, I thought. Keynes. 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 He, yeah, Perhaps he, ironically. <laughs> he keeps uh, a lot of things secret from the Emperor uh, for, for, some, for what we don't know. But he's keeping a lot of Dune secret so they can't have satellite. Like they, he, they're not allowed to have satellites look over Dune, so there's no satellite images of Dune. They can't have weather machines come in there. Um, Why can't they? Because of physical conditions? I don't know if it's physical because... conditions or because Keys himself is somehow like just slowly giving out information and it's mm-hmm. not enough for them to be able to do it because mm-hmm. he's definitely he's so native that he's yeah he's involved in some sort of mystical uh, messianic religion in which which is really interesting because we we look at Genesis the whole hope of most freemen and the freemen religion is to bring water to dune to change the landscape of dune mm. right and that's and what they, they, think they think that, that Paul is going to do, right? Or, like, exactly. the, the one who they think Paul is, is, like, set to, like, turn Arrakis into, like, a lush jungle. Right, Maudi, the, the outsider who brings water and, like, leads us to paradise, mm-hmm. is, is what they believe uh, Paul is. So, I, I had a quick question about Keynes. Was he born Fremen, or did he become Fremen? No, he was... Or was he a Fremen uh, that became, like, the emperor, you know, like, that... Just a representative from Arrakis who decided to play the part of, like, the Emperor's agent or, like, civil servant. No, his father was the original planetologist who was sent to Arrakis to be the planetologist. And then mm. his father, I believe, got, like, a Fremen wife and gave oh. birth to Keynes, uh, who became also a planetologist. But because he, he was just born on planet Arrakis. Okay. Uh, and, and then became... He became Fremen. I look at Fremen as a religion. Is that how we all look at Fremenism? I, it's just like... A, or is it a race? It's sort of both, again. Yeah, that's what I would say. I mean, it's not... Because they, like, like sort of adapt. You, and yeah, you said so with, like, the Native Americans, like, whether it's, like, to that level. I mean, it's, it's certainly to bre- the level where they look at people who come in as outsiders. I mean, they have a completely different way of yeah. life. Yeah. Right. I mean, race is kind of a slippery term anyway. We know this from our race theory studies. Right. Yes, exactly. yeah, we, we are all painfully aware of I, yes. I feel like the, <laughs> I, I, the <laughs> dynamics are racial, though, or yeah. even insinuating the racial, especially if they are going to be, you know, when Cooper, you talked about the Arab relation or the analogy, they do seem to be sort of like the, the stand-in for the Arabs of the native population that has this resource that is mm. being 
exploited from them. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. He borrowed, for the Fremen, he borrowed so much from the Islamic religion. I mean, a lot of the language uh, looks like Arabic. A lot of the terms mm. used in this book and used by Fremen are, like, directly taken from um, Islamic terms and, uh, and and from their religion. So if that's the case, if he's taking a lot of inspiration from Islam, then we have to believe that Fremen is just a religion um, and not necessarily a whole other race of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like a culture, I guess you'd say. Yeah, right. exactly. It would be the generic term for people who live in that style. But they share a right. lifestyle. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that share a cultural style in a certain geographical area. But yeah. they're, they're also, uh, like, seem to have skills that I don't think we've seen a lot of, but, like, hinting at it, where they have this sort of, like, precognitive... Well, because they're all addicted to spice. That's a big oh, part of Freeman religion yeah. is they all, all Freeman have blue eyes because of lifelong spice use. Mm-hmm. That's a huge part of their religion. I think it's touched on a bit where, like, you know, it's it would be what you'd expect. You know, it's like when Native Americans can walk silently through the forest. Like, the freemen are able to walk across dunes. They have, like, that... They have that very... I'm not sure if they brought it up, but they have, like, that sidestepping hitch where they don't have any rhythm to their walking, so they can't call a, a sand walker. Mm. It doesn't really describe it any at well at all, so you kind of have to make it up, but it sounds like they just walk... They don't have any rhythm to their walk intentionally, so they don't... Uh, wake up worms, uh, worms yeah. yeah and they can like hide in dunes you know like it, it, they're just super adept at uh, being able to work and live in their environment um, do we want to talk about because a lot of this a lot of this goes back and forth between the Harkonnens perspective mm-hmm. and the Atreides perspective mm-hmm. so so the, the Leto is called Duke the uh, the Harkonnen patriarch is called um, he's a baron baron Vladimir Harkonnen? Yeah. Let's make Vladimir up. Is it Vladimir? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's the patriarch. He's this nasty, fat motherfucker who has to use these, like, suspenser, like, anti-gravity weights just to hold up his fatness. Um, and he's part of his hunger. Very ugly man. And and, uh, and then he has two cousins? Or his two nephews? Mm-hmm. Um, there's the Beast Rabin who used to be in charge of Arrakis. That's who the Freeman referred to when he like kind of came in there and he was the he, he was a, a terrible person and they were assholes. They yeah. were super assholes. And then there's the good-looking nephew, I believe brother to the beast um uh, Rabin. What is his name? A uh, Sting. If anybody saw David Lynch's Dune, Sting oh. from the police plays this guy. <laughs> 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 it's fucking Sting. <laughs> Wait. Oh my god. What is his name though? He's he's in, he's a huge part of the book. He's 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 very much an, an antagonist in the story. Sting, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, he does a pretty good job with it too. Oh, it's Fade Rutha, Rutha. Oh, yeah, all right. Rutha. Fade Raya. Raya. Fade Rutha. Rutha. Fade Rutha. F e f e y d hyphen h a u t h a. Fade Rutha. Yeah. So that's that's him. He's like the the good looking uh, sly. Uh, Harkonnen, who's who's poised for something, mm-hmm. for what we're not he, sure. He wants him to be the emperor. He does say that. Yeah, yeah, right. that's right. The first Harkonnen emperor. It's it, this is very much like a like a good like a very obvious good and bad. I mean, even the Harkonnens have an evil fucking mentat. Like even their mentat uh, Peter Peter is fucking Piter. a gross sexual deviant like uh, sociopath. Peter. It is it is it is wonderful to read a book where it's just very classically like 
here's the good guys. Mm-hmm. I Duncan Idaho's dope. You know, Gurney mm-hmm. Halleck's the best. And then you go to the bad guys, and like even their crew is disgusting. Like, <laughs> only the crew that would hang out with disgusting people are obviously going to be disgusting. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I don't know if we want to talk about the bloodline complications, but this that idea is complicated a little bit. I mean, there definitely is a manichaeistic element to this, mm. a huge one. But I don't know if you want, we want to discuss what's disclosed about halfway through with the bloodline of some of the characters. Oh, for sure. I, I think know. it's a big thing. And this this whole podcast, obviously, is spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like the, yeah. the fact that Paul uh, has Harkonnen blood in his Yeah, he's well, mother, in his mother, the daughter of Baron Harkonnen. Yes. She didn't know that, I don't think. Yeah. She did not know that. Be- but he knew that. Yeah, because he has that pre... He has some sort of preternatural Future sight type So he's ability. not a mentat. Then. Who? Paul. Paul has mentat abilities because he was trained by Tafir right. Kawat to be well, a bit well, of a mentat. And also he's like the smartest dude. So he combines Messiah, like a dude. bunch of different stuff. Yeah. Like his right. mom's like a person reading and... Yeah. Because the, the thing with mm-hmm. Benny Jesuits is they're all very much... It's all women. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it ever says... I think mentats can be men and women. But what Frank Herbert's doing is like... In the idea of a Kwisak Haderach, which is like the male version of Benny Gesserit, he's combining what is typically considered male in literature, which is logic. So he's combining the mentat. He says Paul's naturally a mentat. Then he's combining the ability to touch into familial ties and to read people of the Benny Gesserit. That's how I read it. But I also think, I think he just was kind of trained by their mentat to be a bit of a mentat. And he was just smart to pick it up. And he also has really good... He has really good people relations, like his father, because that's like basically. Though that's, that's like a political of... thing with his father. His people yeah. relations are like political slash social from his mom, where she talks about like registering people by being like ultra sensitive to. Right, but there was a there's a part near the end of this first half where she specifically says something uh, when he's talking to his men after they like pick them up and they're in the desert, yeah. and how how he resembles his father in the way he handles them. Yeah, right, right. Oh, sure. But I didn't see... I have to find the exact I, spot. I mean, but. like, political and social are kind of, like, fluid He's just taking after his categories. daddy. After Mufasa. <laughs> after Mufasa. Yeah. <laughs> That's well, a- I think it's more of, like, in his, like, being able to, like, uh, instill, you know, confidence in the people yes. that are fo- following him. Yeah, right. Is, like, kind of what leader. his father's, like, best trait was in that... So he's kind of like a conglomeration of like all of these different, you know, he's the fucking messiah. The the mentat ability, the mentat ability to me always seemed like the the like the beautiful mind scenes where he would see like mathematical equations floating in front of his head. It seemed like that's like what the ability of a mentat is: is they can just follow logic to an inhuman or what we would consider like extraordinary ability. But I always thought they consider like, all the different possibilities and yeah. see how those can play out and. Mm-hmm. At so, the cost of detaching oneself from their emotions. Yeah, which right. is crazy because then a big part of Benny Gesserit is to be in touch with your emotions. So mm-hmm. Paul's walking that that fine line. But yeah, we have the Harkonnens who are going to be. They are the mortal enemy to the Atreides. They've been in a Canley for a number of centuries, which is like a feud, a or... term like yeah, a family feud. Um, and and so yeah, can we remember what's their there is a reason why, if I remember correctly, I believe the Harkonnens are working with the Emperor. 
and they like made an agreement. They're like, you know, we have this Canley with the Atreides. We want to get rid of them, and we both want to be in control of Spice. So how about we'll give up Arrakis, you force the Atreides to take Arrakis, and then we'll devise a plot to get rid of them. That's what we know so far, I believe. Mm-hmm. Has that been stated? I think in uh, uh, loosely. I mean, the the Duke certainly suspects something. He, yeah. you know, there's a lot of it. Is it is very much. Uh, and I think the Baron uh, alludes to it too when you are in like in his inner monologue when he's talking and you see the scenes with him. Right. Sure. Him and him and Piter have some sort of scheming going on. The Duke mm-hmm. uh, is is nervous and sort of is sort of is like walking into his own death. There's like some references to where he has to do this but is aware of the fact that at it's going to be at the cost of his own life. But it's an order it's an order to 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 hopefully have Paul and Jessica be okay, like to get away. Mm-hmm. Right now I think it's I think it's muddied. I think as a reader we're not sure quite well, what the plan duty, is. I get the sense of and it seemed like that was his duty to go to this new planet and he was going to follow it right. because he wanted to uphold his morals. And it's one of those things too, like maybe if he didn't, if he, because it was an order from the Emperor and if he didn't do what the Emperor said, maybe maybe he, his family would be punished on Caladan. So in order to right. not have to suffer the consequences of the, the ire of the Emperor, he just, he had to do it. So did anybody pick up on just the fucking sexual depravity of, the, of Baron Harkonnen? Oh yeah, Coop, bring it back to oh, sexuality. Oh yeah, he's a pedophile. He's a pedophile. Like he's a he. Uh, he has he's a, a gay. Oh, that's like right. Paul. He likes. He, he's a. He's a. He's a. He's Damn, a gay pedophile. This is a. This is a PC. <laughs> he's pod, a gay pedophile. Podcast, okay. Wait, well, specifically, I mean, he loves little boys. No, yeah, he actually loves little boys. Yeah. No, yeah, there was that one scene where he fucks uh, them to death. Oh, he was. Does he? Well, they he, always he, kills them. <laughs> Oh. Well, and there's that scene where he fantasizes over Paul because right. he gets like a he orders him to bring a little boy that looks like him. Yeah, <laughs> and he's like, hey. <laughs> I mean, like, what a fucked up empire in which like the people who just work for Baron Varkonnen like have to live in this world in which if he orders them to bring them like a young boy from the village, they have to, even though they know what's gonna happen. That's so fucking disturbing. Oh yeah. That like that's how He's much power and like lay on them and how suffocate them. In in the movie uh, by David Lynch, all of the young boys in his um, in his retinue have like this like plug in their chest, and when he gets like the need for it, he'll just like be slobbering at the mouth and like zoom because he's always flying around that's mm-hmm. how David Lynch wanted to show him with his dispensers he's like this fat dude flying around and he'll just like pull the plug out and like blood starts pouring out and he's just like ha 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 die little boy die <laughs> I'm like I guess this is much better than showing what he actually does in the books to these You're little right, boys yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that's a big part to remember I brought it up just because a lot of what we'll see in the book is this idea of the fall of an empire um, and a big part of it is, I think he, I read somewhere that he, he borrowed a lot from Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which is a novel in, or a nonfiction book by, by Gibbons. And, and a big tenant of why he believes the Roman Empire fell was because of the rise of Christianity. Um, and if we look at it in that sense, you know, we haven't really seen much of the emperor or, or heard much from him. We know that. He, he may not be the most popular dude. And what we've seen from the Harkonnens is that they're this very 
arrogant, overindulgent, sexually deprived family. Depraved. 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 They're not they are deprived very, by, yeah. by any means. <laughs> You're right. They're, they're depraved. Um, and so we, we're, it's setting up this idea of there, there's corruption in the bad guys and it will be to their downfall. And the Christianity in this sense, we can look at it as being the Freeman religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if we've, well, we, we kind of get the sense the Freeman are, are downtrodden, oppressed people and their, their religion is very much to do with an outsider coming in and leading them to freedom, to, to global domination even is a big part of their religion. Planetary, is there like an interplanetary salvation going on here or what's the scheme? I get, we just don't know about the prophecy in enough detail to really. Not yet. Yeah. There's a lot and there's a lot of prophecies going on too and it's, Mm-hmm. It what's it will will we'll see how how all these different prophecies meld together or maybe they won't but yeah we have a lot going on we have mm-hmm. the Freeman uh, hoping for an outsider um, leading them to freedom we have the Benny Jesuits looking for their Messiah um, I can't quite remember does anybody remember why they're looking for the Quizek Cataract is it just like the or, ultimate was it Jessica just wanting to produce it out of her own selfish. Because we've seen, like, the power of the Bene Gesserit are unfathomable. Mm-hmm. We, right. as, as of right now, and there, there's obviously, like I said, like, they're, they're taken from nuns. They have the Orange Catholic Bible. So they are the Christian, the, the, the Catholic Christian sense of, the, of the, their, the future of the Christian Catholicism. But they run everything. Mm-hmm. I mean... Well, and wasn't the Reverend Mother, like, upset with Jessica in the beginning because she uh, had a son and was teaching him in the ways? Yes, that's a huge. That's a huge part of it. Is that she broke the rule of the Bene Gesserit. They ordered her through tests, and they're like, "Oh, we don't think you're going to have the Quizak Hatterach, so just have a girl." Because they've been able, they've learned so much about the body that they can control that. And she broke the rules and had a boy. That's a huge part of oh. of her relationship with the Bene Gesserit, and also Paul's story is that he wasn't supposed to be born. He was he was supposed to be a girl, and then obviously she. She further broke the rules by teaching him Benny Gesserit ways. Right. Without, like, permission, basically, from their high. Yeah. As of right now, I mean, Jessica, Lady Jessica is sort of ostracized from the Benny Gesserit. She's sort of an outsider because they are very, very much into their rules and and into people following them. They're Catholics. They're Catholics, and they they don't rule the universe with just because they have a, a flimsy sense of, like, well, two strikes, you know... They're very much into global domination. They're they're doing it right now, and uh, and Jessica uh, did not follow her orders. Cool. I Damn. guys, by the way, I should say I should probably head. I have to. I got some stuff I got to do for for class. What time? Hmm. How much time you got? I was planning Give on leaving ten minutes ago, so. Okay. Probably I probably have five minutes. I can peace out, and you guys can continue though. Okay, maybe we'll just go to 11. Okay, another 20 minutes. So, Jordan, if you need to dip, you can. Uh, I might need to, because I have to read another 100 pages in four, hours, in four and a half hours. Yeah. For class. Do what you gotta. That's like 25 pages uh, an hour. You got it, bro. Actually, wait. I'm sorry, I'm, I don't mean to exaggerate. It's 160 pages. Ooh, that ups the angel yeah. a bit. I probably won't even finish it, but... Well, then, do you want to just know. give your, your final thoughts on uh, part one sure. of, of Dune? Sure. Before you sure, leave? Bob. Yeah. Uh, 
Tell us what you think. If you missed anything, any themes that you thought interesting that we should be looking at going forward or other stuff like that? Well, I, I don't know. Going to grad school right now, I'm always forced to think in like a critical theory way. And I just see this whole novel is replete with colonialism, with religion, with uh, Marxist or economic theories, um, even feminist stuff as well. Uh I remember I explained this story to my girlfriend and I said, oh, there's these ultra like warrior females who are trying to find, who are basically the most um, uh, hardy warriors that exist and they're trying to find this boy to fulfill their prophecy. I remember she was like, oh, that's kind of a letdown that like, the, the boy, the man will save the women. Even though the women have all this power, they still need a man. And I was trying to reconcile that. And the way I read it was that the Ben Gesserit, I don't know if we're supposed to view them negatively or positively. I, I, I view them positively right now. I don't know if it's more complicated than that. But... Ugh. Uh, Fucking Benny Gesserit. Are they... Are they <laughs> so, Cooper, what do you think? Are they... Well, I mean, anytime I see a very powerful force who runs everything... Yeah. Women or men, oh, I'm going to be hesitant. For sure. I didn't know I'm they had that much I'm... power, though. I thought that they were sort of like like the Jedi. Like, I just see them as like, remember the Jedi she... outside of the oh. Yeah. Is that not true, though? Because you know, you've read well, all the novels. They use like a, a force voice power. Yeah, I mean, they, they have uh, a lot of control over everybody they meet. You know, a lot of people refer to them derogatorily as witches. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. they think yeah, their power right. are, are beyond it. But, I mean, yeah, from what we've seen, they... they they sort of, I mean, they control the entire genetics of the universe. Okay, so they manipulated Jessica too, right? Yeah, okay. they manipulate everything, everybody. So, I guess, okay, well, then I take back a lot of what I said. But I think a lot of it is about reconciling this male-female power sure. uh, into one entity, which happens to be a man in this case. Um, right, yeah. and it's 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 confusing because I, I agree, it's hard to reconcile, but I, I like to look at it as maybe the Kwisak Haderach isn't necessarily their savior. It's the fact that in their own powers, despite millennium of evolution, they refer to it in this book as like there's just a part of their mind that they can't reach, and so they think that a, a man would be able to reach it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's more just, just like Because curious. of difference in biology. Yeah, just like, yeah, exactly. There's just a part of their mind that for some reason in their powers... No woman has ever been able to like insanely return from approaching it, mm-hmm. and so they think that it, that's like the male part of their brain. And that if they got a male who could do the female part and the male part, mm-hmm. it's more of just like an experiment. I almost look at it as like you don't want to be a Quizak Hatterach because then you're just at the fucking mercy of the Benny Gesserit. Mm-hmm. You're just a puppet, an experiment, like a genetic a deformity who just is like, oh, cool. Now we know what that part of the brain yeah. is. Unless they have some ability once they find what that entails that is more powerful and becomes sort of right. like a, a rogue agent which is because that's that's the fear with jessica giving birth to paul is that she gave birth to a rogue agent and they don't have control especially when they go to arrakis they lose even further control it is this like right. very intricate plot of like that everybody just trying to gain con- control yeah so i guess i was reading into that the feminist parts of it, the fact that the Ben Ben Gesserit are all female was interesting and definitely a purposeful idea that uh, Herbert was going into with gender. And the other thing with ecology is I was hoping that there would be more explicit ecology rather than the fact that they're destroying the planet, but maybe that'll come in 
um, more as we as they venture out into the desert and they learn more about the the resources the lack of resources and just how uh, how the whole planet has been just I don't know landscaped or deformed. Um, I don't feel like we've gotten enough of that exposition yet. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you guys, for those of you not the the not Cooper, the people that are only halfway through, <laughs> I don't know if they if you guys feel the same way. Yeah, totally. And even like the you know one of the big draws of the book, sandworms are just like very briefly touched on, and you only see them in scene one time so yeah. far, and they don't even come out. I thought they were going to fly out and, like, eat a ship or something. Right. It was just like they saw the mouth of it, and as it was swallowing this huge ship, it was like a vortex of sand, and then, like, yeah. So, I think... Go ahead. No, no, it's just, like, we've seen a a lot of things, like, to the point we read, we've seen things from, like, an outside perspective. Like, you know, we we kind of of follow the Atreides family the whole time, and they're, like, outsiders, you know, like, kind of awed by what's going on. And it's, like, by... The place where we left off, like, like, it's finally, Paul and Jessica are, like, finally in the desert, like, learning how to deal with this shit. So, like, we're going to get, like, right. a, I don't know, that that's at least, yeah, Jordan, I, I, I feel you, like, I think we will, or at least should, uh, get a more, like, insider's perspective of, like, how all this stuff kind of works yeah, in the second feel- half. Yeah, it feels like, at this point, the end of the first part is where the adventure, quote-unquote, really begins, where it kind of, like, it sets it up in this narrative way where they have all this power and then they're suddenly thrown to the bottom. Like this dynasty is, they become basically wayward exiles. So that'll be interesting to totally. see them navigate that world. Um, right. Anything else, Jordan? No, that's it. I'll leave you guys to it. Uh, excellent book. Uh, I'm super excited to finish it. This is, a, it's a nice break from reading Victorian novels for my grad classes. <laughs> oh, I, I imagine it's so. so yeah. It's like candy when I go from the Brontes to. Uh, it's, <laughs> so, it's so much fun. So you, you like it? You're you're. Oh yeah. You can't. Oh, I'm, I'm hooked. Good. Cool. Yeah, I'm cool. definitely hooked. I think it'll be fun next time. We'll kind of after having this conversation, and we'll do like hash out a little more plot stuff probably after you leave Jordan. Mm-hmm. But um, next time we'll be able to hit like grander themes and right. like have a larger picture to comment on just stuff that we've been thinking about. Yeah. But totally. it's always difficult talking about a book when you're only halfway through. So, well, and it's so complex. It's like a whole nother universe and time. Right. So, right. Yeah. And the second half of the book is, could be like a book in yeah. itself. It seems to be pointing that direction. Okay. All right. Well, cool. I'll see you guys later. Cheerio. See you, man. All right. All right. See you. Happy reading. Um, All right. And something. Then, yeah, four, something. Uh, ugly mugs. Yes. Yes. And then there were what? Four. Three. Four. <laughs> four. Um, Five. So something that struck me Five. about this a little bit was like we talked a little about how they have epigraphs to every chapter, mm. and uh, it kind of reminds me of the Elder Scrolls games a little bit because like in all those games, you're just like thrown into this like random world. You're not. There's no like explanations like. Oh, yeah. and then there was this. It's like you just get it through references and like random little like correspondence. Totally, like looking at different, different like notes and like textbooks right. you find that you have to e- read Everything's through. just like this world is just taken for a given. It's like, you know, the Thopter clearly was created. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's no like, oh, like this is how this works and this is how these people came about. It's just like you kind of just have to like take it all in... Like, you know, you just kind of have to get it all from secondary material, I guess. It's all just referenced mm-hmm. and, like, taken as a given. 
Right. I think that's what I appreciate about this, too, because it doesn't get bogged down in, like, uh, worrisome details about mm. the science well, and, like, nitty... Right, and it makes it more kind of grand in scope. Like, like when you mm-hmm. have the epigrams and, like, all these quotes, like, it makes it feel like a broader universe. Like, you know, like, there's, like, a lot more time. Like, like you said, Dune universe, you know, goes over thousands of years. So you have, like you're presented with commentary from another time on this time and it just makes it seem that much more grand like that much more like like this big like unifying thing right totally well and some of those sayings are like pretty dope actually oh yeah fear is the yeah, mind is. killer fear is the mind killer oh did yeah have we did she do like the 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 fear phrase or whatever the the to rid herself of fear she does that a litany against fear. The litany against fear. It's so fucking awesome. Is it, if, yeah. if anybody finds it, that would oh, yeah. be awesome if somebody could read it. Oh, yeah, I'll read. Uh, yeah, I got that. Uh, yeah, we should get some readings in here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Incidentally, fear is also the state builder. Fear and power, right? Yeah. Right. As the Baron tells us. There's, and there's, there's, some, there's quite a bit more, too, that we could talk about. You know, we... It sets up a lot in this first first part. Jessica's pregnant with the daughter, right. with Duke's daughter. Um, um, the battle language. What about it? It just I love that. I love the uh, the idea of of that evolving, mm. and it 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 also becomes a, a the just the idea of of languages in this world and. And um, being able to communicate non-verbally mm. is a huge part. Oh yeah! In the dinner, there were all the hand signals. Yeah, and just stuff. like the weird, like scratching a nose or the Different chin words. meant like, mm-hmm. oh, watch over here. Like mm-hmm. there, like <laughs> there's like whole phrases, and he he keeps it very vague because I don't think he's able to explain it. But mm. they just say they're communicating with their hands, which is phenomenal. Uh, I I have the litany against fear, gentlemen. I'm, yes, please, uh, please I, read I, it. I think I'm tipsy enough to give a. Uh, Inspired reading. Uh, <laughs> and is this, I believe it. Is this right. something? Did she she read this as they were flying in the Thopter in the Sandstorm, right? Yeah, I think mm. so. After I, they, esca- up they, they escaped. Once. Yeah, this yeah. comes up yeah. as the first day, the first page in my Dune fiftieth anniversary edition. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think yeah, we've seen it in the Sandstorm when he's piloting the Thopter and uh, otherwise. And uh, so <clears throat> the litany against fear. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little breath that brings... Little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Thank you. That is so awesome. So dope. Yeah. Because there, there is so much. It's chock full. I just flipped to one of the epigrams uh, from the Manual of Maudi by the Princess Irulin. What do you despise? By this you are truly known. I can just fucking hear just just horns and, and guitars <laughs> blaring in the background every time I read those. <laughs> what do you despise? Oh, I had some marked. Let me read one of mine. <laughs> oh, this is a cool one. Greatness is a transitory experience. It is never consistent. It depends in part upon the myth-making imagination of humankind. The person who experiences greatness must have a feeling for the myth he is in. 
He must reflect what is projected upon him, and he must have a strong sense of the sardonic. This is what uncouples him from belief in his own pretensions. pretensions. The sardonic, sardonic is all that permits all... him to move within himself. Without this quality, even occasional greatness will destroy a man. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. I like greatness talk. Well, and that remind me too... The, the myth makers. That's a huge fucking part of this novel. We oh. didn't even talk about oh, yeah. the, the Benny Jesuit myth that they've created in order to like safeguard themselves on any world they go to. They are literally oh. manipulating humankind across the world, creating myths so that their women can be safe in the universe. That's fucking bananas. Like <laughs> we've we've seen a bit like the Benny Jesuit have admitted to like they had a hand in shaping the Freeman religion. Yeah. They manipulated the Freeman religion and then which gave rise to their respect for Reverend Mothers and then Keen's father gave them the myth of the outside Messiah. So it's it's because the scope of Dune's so big Herbert's able to give reasons for these religion. It's we look at Freeman as mm. this respectable culture, but then you can look at them as just colonizers who was manipulated by these powerful women that led to then mm. a very powerful uh, and, and, and thoughtful and ecological people. It's fucking brutal and crazy to think of 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 just uh, in terms of yeah myth making. That's the Benny Jesuits are in the or they're in the game of myth making. Does anybody remember that? Like, or what's that? What's that called? Because they keep referring to the term. Oh yeah, there is a, in 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 my glossary. There is a specific term for that. <laughs> That's what I'm searching also in my glossary. <laughs> uh, Let me look at my glossary. <laughs> yeah, pull out the glossaries. Uh, there's a term for what these Benny Gesserit women do. Um, this will be fun. Just silence as we search. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let me sing a little tune while we wait. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, no. No. Please, no, Eric. Shaitan. That's pretty cool. That's what they call Satan. I whip oh, my yeah. hair back and forth. I whip my hair. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. Sorry. Let's see. Reverend Mother. So that's the, that's the term for a proctor of the Bene Gesserit. One who has transformed an illuminating poison, a.k.a. spice, within her body, rising herself to a higher state of awareness. Aha! Aha! I, I found go. it. Did you In find your it? glossaries, look up Missionaria <laughs> Protectiva. What's it called? Mich- Missionaria, Missionaria Protectiva. Oh, that's Sounds right. Latin. The arm of the Bene Gesserit order charged with sowing infectious superstitions on primitive worlds. Thus opening these regions to exploitation by the Bene Gesserit. See, pet Panoplia no. propheticus. Oh boy, there's another one. I'm, 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 I'm on the chase. <laughs> let's go. I'm on the chase. Pano- Panoplia propheticus. Panoplia propheticus. Term covering the infectious <laughs> superstitions used by the Bene Gesserit to exploit primitive regions. See, Missionaria Protectiva. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Oh no. <laughs> Fuck, we gotta go back. <laughs> yeah, a Mobius loop. That's so fucking. Cr- I had totally forgot about that. That, th- that is like. Well, and, and I mean, again, going back to the power of the Benny Gesserit in the universe, it is being slowly shown to us that they are really uh, affecting uh, everything that they touch. Basically, the, the, what I got was like they are the big players. Besides, like, so it's basically you have the emperor. And the Sardaukar, or whatever it is, and like, 
You got the the Great Houses, the Benny Gesserit, and the Space Guild, and the Choem, whatever the uh, the yeah the corporation, which we have only heard a little bit about, if I'm correct. Right. It's it's just like a giant developmental company. It's just who like manufactures shit and it's just another explanation of the world we're living in in which there's this giant corporation there's a space guild the Benny Gesserit um so is there anything else we need to talk about uh, like plot yeah. points I feel like we should do it like another a little stretch in detail over the last part of this part just like what happens and where we're left like where the duke is has the dental implant for the poison and all that stuff. U. Y-E-U-H. So, Dr. U. U. Right. It's, it's the big betrayal by their doctor because uh, Harkonnen captured Dr. U's uh, wife and used her to threaten him to, to do... Uh, to, to betray the Atreides family. He's going to be tortured and shit. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that plan fails. The Harkonnen goes in and captures him. Uh, before Baron's able to get poisoned, he's able to leave the room. Yeah. He leaves the poison, but yeah. before he could, like, he, he, he sweeps from the room before the gas can get him. It, it gets, it gets Piter and it gets Except, a couple other soldiers. Doesn't he, like, he's unconscious for a second. Isn't he, like, sort of oh, out of it? Oh, yeah, it might have been, yeah, like a, like a fake out for the reader. Like, you think he's dead, and, like, he comes to... Yeah. He's like, oh, I nearly didn't yeah. survive. Right. And then um, Jessica and Paul have made their escape in a thopter um, from a complex, a Harkonnen complex. Oh, no, I think they're still on their, in their um, castle or their, their estate. Well, the, but they were drugged and then taken somewhere. Oh, yeah, they were thrown into a, a thopter and then they were going to be transported. And yeah, they, they they like look up and they see like a their family sign that Doctor Yu put in there because he put like still suits in there for him. Yeah. And, and then this is we I think this is where so they Paul escape. uses his voice right for the first time right because they had they had the or two anyways, guards that were gonna go dump him and they the were talking about executing them and then they used their voice and then they used his voice to get his mother free and then she used her more trained voice to make them like you know. And body writhing. Yeah. Right, she she was... Uh, uh, For the deaf guard. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she gets them free, because they fight over her. They, they're about to, like, rape her. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no. And then Paul just fucking kicks him in the chesticles. And oh, they, yeah! They Paul die. puts his toe up his abdomen, yeah. right into the heart. Yeah. Just showing further just, like, how trained these people are. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a master of, of karate. And then they escape, and then they get picked up. Well, a, a big part. How just did going, that just go? going back real quick, a big part when when the when the trade when the 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 traitor you uh, kills Leto, uh, the big reveal is that all of Leto Harkonnen's, the Duke. Leto Sorry. the Duke. Yeah. yeah. All of the the big reveal is that all of Harkonnen's quote unquote soldiers were actually Sardis. Right. Which ties the Emperor into Dr- this dressed as Harkonnen's um, to this deal. Yeah. So like. It is it is it is the big reveal that oh no not only is this like a Harkonnen thing but they have the Emperor uh, also in this plot because those are like his forces that he uses or something that's his yeah, soldiers okay. yeah and he gave them to Harkonnen but the Freemen kill like three hundred per their three or something I don't know if it's that drastic 
And that's what's cool toward the end of uh, the section where we... Well, no, that was, that was one thing I think J-Bone mentioned a little bit is like... So basically, like, so for the section we read, a good three-quarters of it, it's like, oh, the Sardaukur, like, they're the toughest thing in the land, and these Fremen are just like these ritualistic savages. And then, like, toward the end when, like, when they're in the desert and they meet the Fremen, like, they, they see them kill, don't they? Like, just, like, tons of the Sardaukur, like, it's nothing. So like their power is like it's it's kind of like they're they're, they're kind of like swept aside at first, but like well, and they like they were talking like jokingly how uh, bad some of the Harkonnen soldiers were, but the Sardaukar were like pretty good because the you know like a couple of the Freemen died, but they had taken out like twenty. Right. So from here, Jessica and Paul have escaped in the Thopter. Yep. They've, they've gone into the sandstorm. Yeah, yeah. The sandstorm. That's like survived. the very last thing that they, happened. They crash landed. Is that Did the... we get that far? I believe so. If yeah, because it's it's a couple yeah. hundred pages, or maybe it's a page. Okay. Yeah. Where's quite a bit? Because I mean, one of the biggest things ever is that fucking uh, Paul trips balls and sees the future and shit. Yeah. So is he doing like Molly or something? Well, he does something, man, that kicks him real hard. <laughs> because, like, he starts talking is, to his mom, a- dude, and, like, freaks her the fuck out. Oh, yeah, he is freaking out at her, isn't he? Because <laughs> a, big, a big part is that, uh, so they land in the desert, and Paul knows he's safe. Here's a part where Paul refers to it. He's like, we'll find a home among the freemen, Paul said. Where your missionaria protectiva has brought us a bolt hole. Aha. And then Jessica's thinking to herself, they prepared a way for us in the desert, but how can he know the missionaria protectiva? Again, showing Paul's ability to to read people and... Like his um, future sight. Well, he, he can see... It said he's, he can see possibilities. Like, he has the ability to see all the different possibilities from the point they're at. So he's able to, right. like, analyze different, like, paths for them to take and their outcomes... And that's, like, him sitting there, like, realizing he, he can see all this, and it's, like, overwhelming to him at first. And so he's, like, snapping at his mother, being like, you did this to me. You lied to me, you know. I'm tr- Why'd you train right. me like this? Why'd you make me like this? Uh, I'm trying to... Th- I didn't ask to be <laughs> born, Mom. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, I just found that part. He's going, I'll never be a mentat, he said. I'm something else, dot, dot, dot. A freak! Yeah. Yep. I'm a freak, mom. I'm a freak. <laughs> it's like that Radiohead song. <laughs> or that Lana Del Rey one. <laughs> so she's she's being sued for stealing that one. For copyright infringement or something. I'm trying to find the part what... Because they're in a tent. They're in the desert now. Um, what yeah. brings on the, the tripping of face of Paul? I don't think... I don't know if it's anything in specific where he just starts and he, he's like thinking... Like, does he open up his mentat mind and uh, is able to? I thought that's basically Paul's mind what was had happening. gone on in its chilling precision. Yeah, I, I guess it's just an opening up of what, his what, mentat, what? his like latent mentat abilities. I guess it's just that's what it's supposed to be. He's in the desert, all this stress, and I guess you know he's back. He's he's on the home planet of Arrakis, where he's quote unquote destined to be at. So maybe that wakens up his latent mentat abilities, and he's able to. And the fact that he's dealing right. with his father dying, and he, he he feels like he can't mourn him yet. He feels like he has to like be alert and analytical and like devise their next plan of action. And I think that it kind of yeah, it's like the whole him right. coming into it himself. Yeah, he's it, there's there's like a lot of there's a lot of um, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? 
Like things are being revealed in this section here. We find out through through mm-hmm. Paul that you know he's yelling at his mom. Um, you didn't want a son. He said you wanted a Quizak Hatterach. You wanted a male Benny Jesuit. So, so not only did Jessica she, she didn't break the rules in order just to have a a son because she preferred a son over a daughter, but we kind of get the sense that she was intentionally trying to uh, get the Quizak Hatterach either out of hubris or or whatnot. We're not sure. Um, this is sort of like we we see the end of, of Paul as a child. Um, right. Yeah, for sure. That's he, oh, exactly yeah, he, what it felt like. And she even, met, yes, she even yeah, mentions she, that, I she, think, at one point. Yeah, I, at like, this directly. point now, she kind of recognizes the change in their relationship, and she almost becomes, like, uh, um, not servile, but it's it, it very much reminds me of, like, the Jesus... Christ and, and and his mother Mary story. There's a lot of passages in in the Bible referring to uh, Jesus sort of being dismissive of his mother because he's this all powerful Messiah and she's just uh, his help his help helper. Totally, which is how which is how he starts acting toward her, like in kind of a degrading way, like knowing that he has his potential for intelligence and is right. even he admits he, he tells his mother that she's going to bear a daughter here on Arrakis, his sister, even though she had not told him of of uh, her pregnancy. Wait, so when they say OC Bible, what is that reference? Um, the uh, Orange Cat Orange Catholic Bible, I believe. In the glossary, you find out that it was just there was like a bunch of ecumenical uh, groups where like old popes and, and shit on earth came together and kind of rewrote the bible using their newfound information on space and uh, time can i just stuff. read it real quick so essentially it's, essentially it's just the updated version of the uh, i bible. found it i'm gonna read it or real the quick, christian you know, bible the, yeah please do the accumulated book the religious text produced by the commission of ecumenical translators it contains elements of most ancient religions including the maometh sari the Mahayana, Christianity, Sunni Catholicism, and Buddha's Buddha Islamic traditions. Buddha Islamic, interesting. Its supreme commandment is considered to be, "Thou shall not disfigure the soul." Okay. Nice. So that's what. And then also in this in this section of the of the desert, you know, it's we talked about it, but it's revealed that he knows that Jessica is. Uh, uh, Harkonnen, and that he therefore is a Harkonnen. Um, and then there's a section here towards the end of, of part one where she admits uh, to herself in a moment of exasperation that, my God, you know, he's the he's the Quizak Hatterach. Mm-hmm. So we'll... Uh, and, and then he, he, he sort of tells her that, like, what their next step is is to go become full freemen. Right. That the, the, the only thing they have to do now is to, to walk into the desert, find a freeman uh, uh, troop, a tribe, and make themselves be, become part of it. And it's also the first time where we hear the term jihad used. Where right. Paul refers to what he fears for his future, and that is a freeman jihad. And something that a jihad from the past too. Doesn't he like reference a previous? Well, there's jihad? the there's the Butlerian jihad, and what's interesting, and I kind of want to talk about too, is we have such a um, narrow view of the of the word jihad because of the past two decades, and right. because of media, because of where the world's at, and so it's fascinating that in the 1960s, 
you know, jihad is just a term for a religious war. Right, right. And so there's just all these very strange coincidences where he used the term jihad to refer to the freeman's desire, but he also borrowed a lot of Islamic traditions to 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 uh, help like landscape the freeman his his freeman beliefs and stuff. So it's, it's, I, I don't think it was intentional that he wanted to make the Islamic no. people of his book have a jihad. But it is interesting to look at the coincidence that that is what if you were to mention jihad, I think that's where people's mind would go. Well, do you think he used Arabic traditions partly because of ge- geographical location he was? Uh, yeah, I think he admitted making... to that. I th- yeah, I think he talked about because a lot of his studies was was from the Florence, Oregon. Yeah, that was the inspiration for. It, but then he also enjoyed studying like the deserts of of Saudi Arabia. And, right, and, and how those and people like actually survive in a condition like that. Yeah, exactly. So it, he used it geographically because that would make more the most sense in terms of our mind that the desert people would be of a somewhat Islamic faith. But it's interesting that then a big central part of this book is this uh, possible uh, jihad. But because now we do, we always connect jihad with um, Islamic terrorism. Is exactly yeah. It, it is this loaded term now. Uh, Which where, and I. Yeah, I mean, well. it can definitely be, yeah. I mean, uh, prior to the last couple of decades, like you were saying, it, it was just a term used with, like, general religious zealotry. So this is, I just want to read, because, ooh, delicious, thank you. I just wanted <laughs> to read you. this. I wanted to read this part, because this definitely will become a huge part of it. So we've we've found that Paul is probably the Kwisak Haderach. He's, uh, he's going into the desert. He's thinking to himself, he remains silent, thinking like the seed he was, thinking with the race consciousness that he had first experienced as terrible purpose. He found that he no longer could hate the Bene Gesserit or the Emperor or even the Harkonnens. They were all caught up in the need of their race to renew its scattered inheritance, to cross and mingle and infuse their bloodlines in a great new pooling of genes. And the race knew only one sure way for this, the ancient way, the tried and certain way that rolled over everything in its path, Jihad. Sur- surely I cannot choose that way, he thought. But he saw again in his mind's eye the shrine of his father's skull and the violence with the green and black banner waving in its mists. So he's having this vision that he is leading this Atreides Freeman jihad to roll over the universe, and he is he is terrified and and, and unsure of of the of the of the of the way. And then of course in the most metal way possible part one ends with him referring to himself he goes yes they will call me Maudib so sick <laughs> and then there's a big white page sick there's as a big white page they will call me Maudib and then it's I know I, I sort of wish we had stopped at book two rather than continuing for the next 50 pages beyond book two because it would have been a nice natural stop but we did read we did read a little bit beyond yeah, that. It's okay. If, we can talk about it if we want. It's it's just sort of the aftermath of of the Harkonnens um, taking you know, over. Taking over. It's yeah. Uh, it's it's about what happens. You know, with the Farhuat, the Atreides Mentat, and how he has he's now has to work for Harkonnen and yeah, because he got captured while he's with the Fremen. Yep. Yeah. 
Well, and so what, what about Paul and Jessica now are I, with the friends? Did, no, they're that, still in the Thopter. They're still in the Thopter. Yeah, that's how this chapter is about to begin. No, the but, one that we stopped at. At pay at the one that we stopped at. They're still in the Thopter, but I thought they like met up, they traded yeah. that guy's no, that body through for fear. water. To what? Right before uh, the Sergeant oh, Car okay, came right, on right, and right. killed his friend and then Okay, but then yeah, sorry, I got, they I got, they have that. They're in that thopter. They meet up with uh, Duncan, don't they? Duncan Idaho. They met up with Duncan briefly, and then they took like, how, where did, did they? When did they go through the? Was well, that the sense from when they first escaped? Did that just happen before he trips face? Okay, right now now they're in a thopter though okay. that they stole or something, right? That the doctor hooked him up with. Yeah, he sent him down a path where. There'd be another he, Thopter waiting. And he wouldn't know where they were because he knew he was going to get captured? Yeah. Well, he knew that his life was over after he committed the, the his treason. I think the part we're at, though, is Paul is actually flying the Thopter at this yeah. point. Yeah, through the storm. He's showing his stuff. Yeah. He's really yeah. a, a slick cat. And that's, like, where this next, where the next, our second half discussion will begin. Oh, or, I mean, there's a pretty big part, too, don't, because they meet up with, uh, Keens, right? And then they go into, like, his little uh, room. Yes. And then don't the Sardaukur come in there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so right, 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 yeah. that's it. And do they... Do we know what happens to Kynes? Or to Duncan Idaho? Oh, yeah, wait, so... Yeah, with Kynes, right, he gets captured, I think, but, like... He sends, yeah, and I think Dun that's probably where Duncan Idaho dies. I don't think we've learned. Well, it yet, I think but that Kynes just uh, deviates from them at this part after meeting with them. Well, he sends them right because the Sardaukar come and infiltrate that place, and he sends them down yes. this like yeah. secret passage that's like really long, where they they eventually find like an extra thopter, and that's where yes. they fly. And that's where right, right. the next that's chapter where we begins. Stopped reading. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So Paul is tripping balls in the thopter? No, no, this is like a couple, like, that's, that was like that night, and then he went to bed and woke up, and then they went and found, and found Kynes. Yeah, and this cool. is, yeah, yeah, because they spent a night in the tent after they had first flown into the desert. In the still tent, yeah, everything Fremen has to do with, like, collecting water, so that tent was, was, uh, collecting their moisture that went off their body into it. And then they drank it, and he talked about how it was flavorless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nice body mm. water. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, anything else? Or, I mean, like, it's, we're, we, this is like our first two-parter, so it's hard to be like, do we continue to talk about themes, or do we just wait till we all finish um, the book? And have we just... talked about icebergs yet? <laughs> oh, sorry. Sure. sorry. Our token There's no icebergs, of icebergs in the desert. <laughs> no I had to get it in there. In the I had to get it in there. But, um, um. I think if we just want to say, like, none of us. Maybe there, maybe there will be. <laughs> A separate planet discussing <laughs> an iceberg planet. I, iceberg. Oh my god, that sounds planet. amazing. Yes. my dream planet. <laughs> um, Just tips of iceberg. We haven't. God damn it. <laughs> Are you sorry. done? Yes. <laughs> um, we haven't really done like gone around and like said if we liked it, so we could maybe wrap it up. Say like, this is what I liked about this, and this is what I'm excited to see play out, or something. Yeah. As a final thoughts kind of thing. I'm down for that. Um, um, is, is this all our first time except Cooper? I think so. Yeah, okay, cool. So you're our, like, prophet. <laughs> I just remember a lot of it. 
I'll leave. Let's leave it the end for you. We'll let you have last word. Okay. Dan. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I really enjoy it so far, it's been good, like, like, we talked about the rocky beginning, and that's Cooper, something you warned us about, uh, immediately, you were like, you know, the first hundred pages or so, it's gonna be kind of rough, they're slanging terms around left and right, and we don't really know what's going on, but, uh, in terms of word, world building, it's fantastic, um, nothing's ever really been like, oh, well, Let's just be like abstract and vague about how that happens, and it's the future, mm. and you shouldn't ask questions. Shit just happens. Like there's there's nothing really that like everything besides like space travel and like mm-hmm. the lack of computers. Like he's very very technical about you know especially the planet itself. Um, yeah, yep. Yeah, very very excited to continue in the second half. See what happens. It yeah really good. It it went completely like it was completely out of my radar. In fact, Julius Osby was the only person I knew who, like... We might have him on doing... next time. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that, that'd be cool. And that was, like, the only, like, other than, like, I, I, I knew that it was kind of revered a little bit by, like, I, I wasn't sure if it was, like, Trekkie status or if it was, like, actual, like, golden, you know, like... The masterpiece of science fiction. But then, like... Right, right, and then, like, when, like, Phil suggested it, and, like, we looked into it, and, like, I had looked into it a little bit before, I was like, damn, like, it's, like, claims to be the best-selling science fiction novel of all time, like, this would be, like, like, listening to rock, listening to rock and roll music, and, like, not yeah. hearing or the Beatles Rolling Stones, or, yeah. or Do you have any predictions? Do you want to, like, yeah. because it would be kind of fun to listen back to, like, where do you think the story is going from here? Or, no, just, just one or two thoughts uh, that you are, like, hoping for. Obviously, uh, Paul's gonna wreck shit, obviously, like, he's, he's just gonna, like, you know, like, it's so much built up around him, it's obviously, he's just gonna, like, take the shit over. Um, let's see, I don't know, uh, I feel like a lot of the main characters are gonna die, for some reason, but, uh, yeah, in, in, as far as individual predictions, Paul's gonna, Paul's gonna slay. <laughs> Paul's people gonna, gonna die. Um, <laughs> Paul's gonna slay, people gonna die. Kane's, uh, Keen, yeah. Keen, Keens will be a happy man. <laughs> Jessica will, will continue to be a proud mother. Um, yeah. Cool, Eric. Yeah, that's basically it. Cool, Eric. Uh, yeah, this was my first time. Like we were talking, and uh, I loved it. I was a little bit uh, intimidated by the size of my edition. It was like say hundred pages, but it's like a brook. A, yeah, brook. <laughs> like, like a, a book. brick. It's like a book. No, I said, Phil. what did I say earlier? You said brook. No, I said like brook. <laughs> Brit, bridge. Oh, yeah. Bridge. So. Sorry, trick. No, you're fine, dude. Um, but once I started reading it, like it's it's like in some parts it's like such a blockbuster action movie, like space action movie, like with some of the the like more um, the parts where you see the conflict and everything. And I was able to sit down and I can just breeze through, you know, like fifty pages in no time. And, yeah. Like yeah. forget how long I've you. actually been reading and. Mm-hmm. I just think it's uh, so engaging with the social and political structures and, like, not so bogged down in the, like, techie stuff about the sci-fi that it makes it more engaging and it, it focuses more on the storytelling, which I like. Because, you know, sometimes sci-fi gets so bogged down in the 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 logistics of what they're trying to talk about that they lose, like, the human and, um, you know, plot good storytelling and plot elements and I feel like this has really good plot elements and like really engaging to the reader. 
Any predictions? Oh, predictions. Um, well, I predict that we're going to see more worms. Uh, and that's what I'm hoping for because those motherfuckers yeah, I've been waiting like good. and I saw that one there was that scene, and I was like this is awesome I want to see more fucking just eat shit you know and so I, and you're gonna, this, I can't wait you're going to be so happy the, the, the scale that they've talked about the size of these worms like just trying to think about yeah in the deep desert size, mm-hmm. it's like it's just it's massive like you know as yeah. big as volcano rims yeah it's, I mean, it's, it's crazy meters yeah, so and my no prediction is, huge. is that uh, Paul's going to have to fucking ride a worm. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> <laughs> no, but, to rescue the spice from the empire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I predict, well, That's yeah, my I prediction. predict we're going to start <laughs> learning a lot more about this spice and why it's so important and addictive. And so. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah I but I'm glad you picked this, Phil, and yeah. I'm glad that you have already read it, Coop, because it makes it super... Uh, seamless for you giving us information about it and shit. Yeah, I do. I feel I do feel like a shaman walking along <laughs> the path. Like. You are the Muad'Dib. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think it'll be. Go ahead. No, Dan. something. I, I was going to talk to you guys. You know, this is being filmed right now, right? What? Yeah, the same guy who did. Uh, is that yeah, true? the same guy who did Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I don't want to. I don't want to say his name because it's oh. French, so I don't want to butcher it. Let's call him Dennis V. <laughs> yeah. Dead. Yeah, Dennis. Old Dennis, Dennis. is uh, like shooting Dune right now. <laughs> cool. Yeah. That's exciting. That's I will. I will exciting. admit that I did not like oh, the new Blade man. Runner. <gasps> I thought it was very oh. boring. Uh, I though seen I, it. I, I thematically like how it looked, how it was shot. The score for it was incredible, so I I am excited yeah, to see what he does with it. Yeah, it will be an interesting it. treatment, that's for sure. Re- regardless of your thoughts on uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Yeah, it'll be regard. I know. I I just I just fucking dug my own grave with. That Don't worry, Dan, Dan's not offended or anything. He's fine. I know. He's fine. I just I just ruined the whole podcast. What the fuck? <laughs> we just have to redo it. Uh, Jesus, <laughs> Phil, just cut it all out. Just cut it out. Phil, your thoughts? Um, I think we are going to see some cool worm shit and cool spice worm shit. shit. Yeah, I think I think there's a high likelihood that Paul will ride the worms <laughs> to free their spice supply. There's a I high high chance of Paul riding the man worms. In sunglasses. <laughs> uh, I'm serious. I just I think it's really fun. This whole setup is neat to see. I think part of the... It's kind of amazing that this was such a seminal piece of work, given that a lot of stuff since then has uh, continued to be, like, techno-obsessed, I think. Yeah. I think that's also a product of Hollywood and, uh, like, kind of the superheroization of, like, a lot of our movies, where it's just, like, explosions and tech. Um and well, they have you know the ability to like be able to have sweet CGI now, so people are. That's what it's about. Using the shit. Yeah, and I'm into that stuff. I love explosions and CGI mm-hmm. as much as the next guy, uh, but it doesn't make for great storytelling if like that's where your main focus is. Right. And I think that was something that was really really neat about this, just with that whole machine war history, and there not being computers in this world, it does kind of like take out a whole large swath of our 
existence that we take for granted, which is largely technological. Especially now, I mean, when he was writing in the 60s, he had a very limited idea of of the role of technology in our lives, and it's Mm -hmm. only exponentially fucking quadrupled since then, so... Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's... it's, I... uh, This conversation makes me think I really wish we could do, like, a hard science fiction novel for our next book, because this truly is, like, the epitome of soft sci-fi, and I know in the Google Docs, I, I guess... I mean, should we give a, a quick definition of soft sci? I mean, essentially, soft yeah. sci-fi is well, it's, it works well, off of two definitions. Uh, it, it, in soft sci-fi, usually explores the soft sciences, which are um, so anything like anthropology, sociology, psychology, um, or it's not scientifically accurate. So, what does that like? Like Ursula Le Guin is phenomenal at soft sci-fi, and a lot of her books deal with the science fiction world that uh, makes you question gender and the role of sexuality. Um, but I would be interested to have you guys read a hard sci-fi after this one because, you know, like Arthur C. Clarke, um, Isaac Asimov, Philip K. Dick, all of these guys have written really incredible and exciting hard sci-fi where a lot of it has to do with the very accurate or what they thought was accurate science. And so it can yeah, be done, well, but yeah. I don't think this story could have been even half as good as it was if he had gone that route. Mm-hmm. If he had tried to explain, like, the metachlorian styling of... If he had tried to give a biological reason for what Spice is doing, mm-hmm. I don't think it'd be as fun. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like about it is it ends up, and we kind of mentioned this or alluded to it, that it feels like a medieval story. Mm-hmm. Like I took a medieval lit class where we were reading about all these knights and stuff, um, like by Chrétien de Troyes and that kind of thing. But it does like strip it down when you take the focus off of the tech structures it makes you focus more on social, political, mm-hmm. um, and, like, emotional, too, and how those intertwine. So, like, w- one of my favorite ways we saw that play out in this part was the dinner party, just to go back to that. Yeah. Um, like, it was fun to see everybody, like, especially with uh, Paul and his mom, we were kind of jumping between them as they had their, like, super sensitive uh, perception of what was going on around them. So it'd be like jumping around and like seeing all these different people like juggling to keep working toward, you know, whatever their motive is. Um, So that's really cool to see that kind of stuff just like in Stark. It just stands out that much more when you have that. Yeah. So I'm just excited for more of the same, I guess, and worms. Yeah, I mean, because we've we've left off our hero Paul and his and his mother Lady Jessica are, are having to find uh, um, safety with the Fremen. So we can only expect to just dive into their their culture and their and 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 really get to see what their life's like. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. Totally. Tune in next time for the exciting conclusion of Doom. Wow. Fuck yeah, that was we awesome. We have to end All right. <laughs> Thanks, Drake. How are you Stop serious? recording. Stop. Stop <laughs> Well, that does it for the ninth episode of Waste Books. Um, if you liked it, again, please check out our website, waste-division.org. Leave us a review. Um, on iTunes. That would be cool. And tune in next time for the second half of Dune. So we're going to finish it. And it's going to be cool and there's going to be sandworms. Today's music is a track by Idaho Green called Rancher Bones and it rips. 
check them out. Idaho Green.